Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We have to go back, Kate. to go back lost is over and here we are down the hatch through the looking glass we're up to the season three finale here on down the hatch the lost rewatch podcast i'm josh wiggler joined here by mike bloom mike no jokes just uh holy crap <laughs> holy shit oh holy my we're we're here we've we're actually here. made it to the radio tower broadcasting this podcast that we've been looping for the past you know year and a half covering this josh hearing back that clip the final moments of quite possibly lost greatest episode ever we say that lost meets you where you are and considering you know how disheveled disoriented depressed laconic and just generally malaised jack is by the end of season three and looking forward i think a lot of us are looking at the end of 2020 pointing to bearded jack and saying it me yeah i think that that's right you know an important note though uh mike we are in like this sort of like looking glass nexus point uh of we are recording this in 2020 but this podcast is dropping at the very start of 2021 uh we're through the looking glass of this nightmare year and into i mean i don't know what the year ahead looks like but at the very least we're we're past one point could it be something where i guess we should have done this in last week's podcast of like if you start through the looking glass at such a certain time by the time the the clock rings midnight jack will beat the crap out of benjamin linus oh uh, yeah that would be a great ball drop for sure uh but this is a mic drop uh, not a mike bloom drop okay i was gonna say like i haven't prepared the carpet for such an occasion no you're fine you're doing great uh no it's a it's a it's a huge huge enormous episode of lost i think that like uh to to 
you, you, you really can't oversell this one. I don't think, <laughs> um, you know, like it, both in terms of like its importance in the grand scheme, it's defining place in the show's legacy. It's defining place in pop culture. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's like, it's defining place for, for like all of like the big twisty reasons, but also for being the episode that contains the most heartbreaking death of the series in the, mm-hmm. in the eyes of so many. It is, uh, an episode that showed how much juice they still had halfway into the thing. I know that this is the thing that Damon Lindelof is the proudest of, of like, we showed you, we still got it. You know, they called the, the, we have to go back scene, the, the revelation of the flash forward. Yeah, they the referred to the it, mailbox, the snake in the mailbox. Uh, it's like, you just go, you go to check the mail. Oh, it's another flash, uh, flashback. It's exactly, Oh God, it's a snake. Uh, you know, and it, and it bites you and it stings. And that trick works in a certain specific way just the one time and i know it didn't work that way for everybody because there were certainly people who got spoiled on this uh in the in the live watch which sucks mm-hmm. um but there's uh there's so much value in going back to this episode um and watching the jack flash forward story like it's it's not even just that like it's that trick it's that magic trick that they you know it's that spell that they cast it's that so much happens uh, to this man over the course of this episode that he is such a distinctly different person from the person you are seeing in the rest of the episode and it's giving you a future point to aim for. It is this in, uh, intensely critical piece of mythology that is unfolding it is like this poor, broken down, destroyed, absolutely, utterly beaten, demolished highly different Jack Shepard uh, than the one that we've gotten to know. And it is what I have referred to as the end of book one. I feel even firmer in that stance, <laughs> having finished it again this time. Uh, Stefan Johnson uh, uh, noted, he called it the, the end of the, the book of Jack. Uh, I don't know if that was like a book of Nora reference to take it to the leftovers, but I loved that. Uh, 5.4. Uh, and I, I feel like that that really fits. I, I think that this is this is the it is as the episode uh, as the season four premiere will be called. This actually is not literally the beginning of the end because that's the season four premiere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is at the very least and does foreshadow the episode title. Indeed. In episode. Of course. And I think, you know, he's he's right on the money with that. Yeah. So. I mean, there's so much there's we're going to get into a lot of talk about this episode, but it is so incredibly delicious. Like you said, Josh, upon a rewatch, knowing, you know, especially tragically watching what happens to 815. And it's weird to say tragically because this is a triumphant episode for Jack Shepard in the present, right? This is someone who is able to get accomplished what he promised he would do from the very beginning, which is to seek rescue. He finally gets revenge on Benjamin Linus. You know, he's able to defeat the others, the people that have been marauding and haunting these people since the first couple of nights. You think this might be honestly Jack Shepard's best day on the island? But then it really gives you that bittersweet taste, knowing that when it's eventually revealed that it's a flash forward, not a flashback. Oh, wait, it's not going to be a happy ending whatsoever. It's not going to be happily ever after to refer to another episode title in the far future that this is going to turn out very, very poorly for Jack to the point where he is going to be even a different man from when we saw him in the two previous flashbacks in season three. When we thought he had hit his low point in life. No, no, no. Jack Shepard in 2007 is wishing he could be flying kites with Biling at this <laughs> point. He wishes this is the lowest point in this man's life. And I think matching these two characters, I mean, two separate sides of one man 
up to one another is so starkly invigorating yet like destroying it it whips up such a great maelstrom of emotions because here's the thing you know we, we got a lot of discourse from people writing in this week as to whether or not this is a better episode than Exodus. First off, we're going to save the numerical talk for next podcast, when we'll actually see from a ratings perspective how they compare. But Josh, you know, forgive me if, if this feels like a cop-out answer a bit. This feels a bit like if you're directly comparing the two, it's almost like comparing apples and oranges or, or like mangoes and ranch from that perspective. Because I do feel like largely Exodus is about looking back and through the looking glass is about looking forward. Now, again, I say largely, there are certainly facets that exist in both. For example, you know, Exodus really sets up like the others kidnapping Walt and, you know, uh, we're going to have a lock problem. And through the looking glass, one of the many things it accomplishes is that it really does serve as a nice culmination of things through season three. Benjamin Linus finally gets his comeuppance. Hurley brings back the freaking Dharma van to save the day. We're even setting stuff up with like Juliet and Sawyer moving forward. But I do think that these episodes sort of have different focuses and that Exodus, including the flashbacks, is largely t telling us who are these people before they came to the island and how did their experiences in season one change who they were fundamentally. Season three's finale is more so about, OK, we have an endpoint. We know what's coming. Let's set it up. And even though it is a day of success, for 815 they may have won the battle they may not win the war and so i do feel like the divergent perspectives really make it difficult for me at least to compare and that i both feel i think they both pull off incredibly well to the point where they're some of the best episodes of tv i've ever seen what they're aiming for the thing is they're aiming for completely different sites yeah and i think um there is a degree to which uh i feel like rather than like through the looking glasses about looking into the future. Uh, I, I really think that there's a lot of that is, is in the season four finale. Um, for me, I feel like through the looking glass, it's, it's in the title. It's, it's looking in the mirror, it's reflections. Mm. Uh, and like there are, there is someone on both sides of the mirror. There's the, there's the, there's the person in the reflection, but who is that? Is, is it the person in the mirror? Who who's is that girl I see staring back? You know, I think, I think that there, there's a lot of questions about that. And I think through, through Jack, like you get to uh, really focus on, um, two different sides of the mirror. Uh, but through Charlie, this is a character who's looking in, uh, looking, you know, directly into a, into a reflective surface and, uh, you know, becoming content with who he sees. Um, this is Sawyer looking into like the reflective surface of the creek and not mm. feeling great about what he sees and needing to do something and, um, seeing in Juliet and Juliet seeing in Sawyer, um, why are you doing this? Why are we doing this? Why do we right. need to do what we're about to do? I think like, you, you see in John Locke, he is looking once again for the second time in his life into the heart of the island in a manner of speaking. And he is now regaining the conviction that he thought he had, then lost and sort of got back as to, okay, this is your new mission. Right. This is what you're supposed to do. Right. So I think that the, there's a lot of, a lot of like, um, uh, a lot of like personal reflection that's going on in this episode. A lot lot of like coming to grips with who they've become uh who who they who they are who they've left behind 
all of all of the who they came with and who they're they're leaving with yeah like which line are they on um you know i think that all of the great hallmarks of lost are at their best in this episode uh and i and i do believe uh at least on on one of the rankings that i did i think maybe the mtv ranking um no i think the mtv ranking i did put uh i think i put exodus number one i i i feel like uh it it is really hard to walk away from watching through the looking glass and not feel like you've just watched the most losty episode of lost Mm. you know like i think that this is lost at its best it's got an incredible next level twist it's got remarkable character work the music is out of control the action adventure uh of it all is is so sublime um it's got like all it's so firmly on the island and yet it's moving the mythology super far forward literally in the future in the flash forwards it's historic it's a landmark two hours of the show uh and we're gonna talk it all the way through here uh and you know we're gonna save the feedback for next week we'll save the rankings for next week when we do the full season three look back um but i think all of like the hype coming into through the looking glass for me this is one of those uh this would be a 4.2 breaker this would be a score breaker for me if it could be this would be a if it could be a 4.3 you know an a plus plus if you will i still can't believe we're here josh because it's not that i'm not looking forward to as you say the beginning of the end i know that i'm a big fan of season four you're a big fan of season five there's gonna be so much fun to discuss but this really does feel like the end of an era as you put it oh so many times to the point where there are so many in my opinion like season one callbacks in this episode in particular that it really does emotionally and structurally feel like okay we are for the most part done with this you know type of stuff that we're exploring we're not going to have many trisha tanaka is dead or exoduses i mean or uh, or exposes again for the it's most gonna, part that stuff's done yeah we're we're, we're all going to be about like you know move and move 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 quite literally move the island uh you know in a season from now and it feels like a distinct shift in pace i would say and ironically maybe it's because of the death of pace that shifts the pace that we're, we're going to be less about you know these characters interacting with each other we're going to bring in a slew of new characters that are going to breed you know a lot of fun new interactions but a lot of it is going to be around what's going on to these characters at the time and less so hey let's let's sit down and sort of you know have fun playing ping pong for example and so we we bid adieu to all that and it's a little sad because you know these are three very iconic seasons of television you know season two uh maybe give or take a bit more than seasons one and three and it feels a a bit odd to to say farewell to it even though we are essentially staying in the staying in the boat we're sort of like casting off a very uh important lifeboat to take off on its own after this all right so send that feedback in for next week our season three feedback special down the hatch at post show recaps.com we'll tell you all about what our plans are for the imminent future just a, a quick early note we're not hopping straight into season four we're gonna, yeah, you, we're, you, I was gonna to the point where I would say uh, if you're jonesing to watch the beginning of the end, you don't need to until the end of January. We we, we are we're gonna do something a little different in in January as we recalibrate after we're gonna take like an intermission, but we'll be here. The podcast yeah, there's, will there's, continue. There's, there's gonna be a time shift in honor of Minkowski, who we hear for the first time in this episode. So we'll tell you more details about that next week. With that said, though, Mike, let's go forth in the jungle because we got a lot to talk about uh, just so much. This episode directed by Jack Bender, written by Lindelof and Cuse, aired May 25th, 2007. Josh Wigler recently graduated uh, mm. from, from, from college at so, this so point. 
So this is interesting as well, because I know you couch a lot of your discussion, particularly in like season three of Lost in what you were doing at the time. So did you approach this episode in a different eye at the time, knowing that you were yourself in a very pivotal moment of, of transition? Yeah. In life? You know, this was a moment in my life where like, here's what I knew. I knew that I wanted to write stuff. I didn't know. I, I At the time, I thought it was like comic books. I felt pretty mm-hmm. sure like I want to write comic books. Uh, and I'm an English and psych major straight out of college. And I have absolutely no idea how anything remotely resembling that is going to happen. Uh, I've been, you know, lost has been a hallmark of my life for years at this point. And here we are at, and I'm used to this at this point that the finales would be like isolated events, you know, that Mm -hmm. I, that I wouldn't be with my, with my group that I would watch the episodes with. Um, but this was the first one that I wasn't with my friends from college because we were all done. And, uh, and, and this was the first one where like, yes, we were all away from each other as we always were at this time of year for the finales. But this was the first one where like, well, we're not going to be there for the full season next year together. And for that to happen, uh, you know, while, while life is changing so drastically and so dramatically in that moment, uh, with an episode where the entire structure of the whole thing is changing so dramatically was really intense. Uh, yeah, like, well, life imitates art in that regard. Oddly intense, very, very intense. And for me, like this is a big um, transitional period for, for Lost for me that like now I can map it from being a kid to being, you know, still a kid, but like an adult uh, <laughs> where like, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm legally an adult throughout all of Lost, but I feel like a kid. Uh, and I, and, you know, starting with season four is when I have like my first paid opportunities surrounding Lost, where I first get to start writing about the show uh, as as a job uh, for, for Wizard Magazine. Uh, and so it's, it's very strange to be here in this moment, to be so nostalgic for that period of time. Um, this time that, like, in the moment, like, meant everything and felt like this huge adventure in its own right. And now uh, it's literally, that's like, you know... 13, 14 years ago at this point, yeah. uh, which is absolutely crazy. Absolutely crazy to think about. Uh, so, yeah. So my side of things is that I was going through a very similar transition. Let's just roll it back one stage because uh, I graduated high school in 2007. And so I hadn't graduated at the moment. Right. I had about like a month or so to go. But, you know, I was very much looking at Lost the show that I would watch with my mom you know, every week we, we talk through exactly what was happening and similar to you, uh, you know, to obviously a much more micro extent, it was okay. Now I'm going to sort of be leaving behind, you know, this support system in so many ways. Uh, one of them being obviously from a parental perspective, but also like someone I would watch lost and talk about loss with. And there was a lot of questions and anxiety around that of like, Oh, will I find people to watch loss with let alone people in general, you know, this is my first time being really out on my own whatsoever. And so to almost, you know, uh, be without that structure that we sort of leaned on, again, life imitates art. Look at what we're sort of eschewing with the flashbacks for the most part moving forward as well, which has been a crutch or at least almost like a third leg of the show for quite some time. It, it felt, you know, oddly symbolic uh and the fact that you know loss is not going to come back again for nine months 
after that uh, was also something that was ringing in my head of, you know, all right, if when I settle down in college, I'm going to have a little while to figure things out. And even if I don't, at least Lost is coming back for season four. But certainly in the moment when I got dropped off at college, all I could think was I had to go back. You got to go back. You have to go back. So uh, the man who is going to bellow, we have to go back. We begin this episode with him. And it is a lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, a direct call back to the pilot right here. Jack is on a plane getting a drink. He looks a little more disheveled, quite literally and emotionally than uh, than we saw in the pilot. But, you know, a big, big callback to where we started out things with Jack Shepard. I mean, first thing we got to talk about here, Josh, and this is going to be like, just put the marker in this because it's going to get brought up very many times throughout the show. Matthew Fox is stellar in this he's interstellar in this episode he transcends like space time dimensionality what he is able to bring particularly from the flash forward perspective the tenuousness and tightrope act that is being able to make us believe that this is still a believable past version of jack shepherd while actually being a future version of jack shepherd Honestly, this is probably Matthew Fox's finest work in the entire series, in my opinion. Yeah, I think probably that's right. Uh, I'm trying. I mean, there's there's a lot of like late Jack Shepard that I adore. Uh, I think Jack, as the series goes on, you know, we're going yeah. through the looking glass on like th- he still has further to fall. You know, yeah. like he's but, still- but there, there's some good stuff in the end, too, especially when it comes to like the flash sideways stuff, his conversations with Christian. But I think just the pure gamut that Matthew Fox has to run between the on Island and off Island stuff is, is extraordinary. Yeah. It's, it's really something. And uh, like, I, this is, this is a guy who like, we have talked about Jack as like a problematic character, right? Like somebody mm-hmm. who's like exhibited some, some really, really terrible, troubling behavior. Uh, and someone who like we bag on from time to time. And then other times like someone who like, uh, like really surprises us. And someone who's like, sometimes like just like a total badass, just a great leader has like good bedside man with certain characters other characters not as much but somebody who has been i think like up and down uh for us and uh for me i'm always struck watching this episode by just how how much pity i have for jack shepherd mm. uh you know the jack shepherd of the future is a really pitiful person yeah. uh you know he has uh, he has so much going on that is just like you you can like you can smell Jack Shepard. You and know? it smells a lot like alcohol. You know, you can smell him in this episode. Uh and like you can feel your heart racing when you, you when you imagine yourself in the same room as a person with the energy that is coming off of a guy like this. Uh and sort of like the dangerous quality around him. And it's not just Matthew Fox, who of course is stellar in, in this episode, um, but a lot of like the work around Jack. And I know that people like make fun of the fake beard. I actually really don't care that much about the fake beard. Honestly though, in a 2020 lens, like Jack was, I think predicting a big trend. Jack did core and beard before a lot of us. And I think, you know, I think Matthew Fox could pull it off. I, I think if it gets a little bit more shorn closely, I think particularly the mustache, like it's a little overgrown. I think if you trim that thing down a little bit, I, I think you can pull it off personally. I think it's fine either way. Like it, it doesn't bother me because like, I think the performance is so great and I think it lends to like where the character is, but I think that the, uh, there's so much else in the episode that's doing a lot of work for him, whether it's, um, a lot of the camera work. It's like, it's just like really in his face. It's just mm-hmm. there. It's just, you're glued to Jack. There's uh, a, a great, 
uh, Giacchino moment coming up later in the episode. That's uh, a combination of just like being stellar scoring, but also like uh, really intelligent editing, like a really smart storytelling choice. We'll get to it later when he's like in the, in the hallway at the hospital and the music starts swelling up to like amp up that anxiety of like the danger that one feels on the Island. And yeah. then it just disappears. It's it just so goes yeah, away. Yeah, when he when he walks into we'll get to it later, like you said, but it's when he walks into the the waiting room, right, and does yes. that little like meek wave to the kid. It's yeah, it's, it's this idea of like, and you and I have experienced it very much. Like you have a panic attack, you get into it, and then like it all sort of goes away, whether you have to put on this performative aspect or not. Of like, okay, now all this inner orchestral panic just has to disappear in an instant. There is so much incredible stuff going on here, and what, and what I do love about the building up of this environment as well for Jack, because like you said, I do think he's a very pitiful character in this part is obviously the term hero is going to have so much weight more so knowing the circumstances behind everything, which again, is another masterful piece of the writing in this whole flash forward. But I do think that it gives us a great sense as to like, the pressure that is on Jack Shepard, right? That you would think, okay, the pressure that he's faced before from his father uh, that he sort of put onto himself as something that was very palpable in flashbacks. This pressure feels different. This is not coming from one direction. This is coming from all directions for Jack Shepard, that he is now living a lie, that people are approaching him at the pharmacy and being like, hey, you're the hero, uh, you know, giving him calling him things that he does not himself feel confident in being giving him essentially an identity crisis. It is a lot. And this episode, maybe even more so than the flashback episodes we've seen previously, give us such a great window into Jack's soul, which is ironic given how much is obfuscated in lieu of the big twist. Right. Yeah. I think, I think it's really, really powerful. You know, the first scene, it's him on the airplane. He's drinking. He looks like crap. Uh, it's another oceanic flight. He wants another drink, even though they're landing in 20 minutes. He says 20 minutes is a long time. Yeah. Have a lost episode. A lot can happen in there, you know? And I, I feel like this scene does a lot of, you know, the fact that he's on a plane, you don't know when this takes place yet, mm-hmm. but like on the first watch, you're not thinking that it's a flashboard. And I, I just want to check with, with you. Uh, does like the fact that like do you do you see the 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 point that I've tried to make at all with Stranger in a Strange Land's utility? Like, can you imagine that this is a Jack coming out of that coming out of that situation, coming home, still a little worse for wear? Uh, kind of. I again think you know, for me, one of the bigger surprises of season three, which we'll get to next week, is a tale of two cities. Yeah. I'll still nail home what I did before, which is like, I actually am completely fine with eradicating the flashback in Stranger in a Strange Land. It certainly adds stuff, but not as much as A Tale of Two Cities. And I could very much see a connector between these two episodes, you know, with Sarah making an, an appearance between the bookends of it all with being the, the premiere and the finale. So I would say, what, you know, what you essentially cop to Stranger in a Strange Land, I would more so assign to that episode of even if we take away the Thailand of it all, I could see a Jack Shepard who, you know, we last saw get in a fight with his father at an AA meeting, just right. now like completely crashed, growing out his beard, just trying to fly on planes back and forth. Maybe he's doing it in, in search for Christian Shepard, who we assume takes off after this. You know, there, there's there's stuff that I think directly connects more so to that episode. So he's given a newspaper instead of a drink. Uh, and he sees something that we do not. 
you know, eventually I think that there, you know, there are people who, who really went in on like, oh, it's, it says Jeremy Bentham. Who's Jeremy Bentham? And like all the theories surrounding who is Jeremy Bentham start to kick in. Yeah. Is he the he that Kate's speaking about? Do you think, um, do you think this newspaper was planted? Is there, could there be an AOJ situation going on to get Jack back to the island by posting Locke's obituary there? It's possible. I don't know that it matters too much to me. Um, I think that it, it can, it can, I think like you could do that if you want. For me, I think it's fine if you're just sort of getting into the like whole like, uh, everything is connected man type stuff yeah. and like, you know, this, things are supposed to happen. You know, things are, things are going to go the way that they're going to go. So um, I'm one of the reasons why, you know, I asked that is because there are so many freaking parallels from the Jack Shepard flash forward to John Locke in so many ways uh, to give a, a smidge of the fantastic 22 minute Jim's Jim Fells episode for this week. Uh, the theme that gets brought in for Jack in this flash forward that starts as he, you know, pulls his car aside after the flight and starts to break down his new motif contains Locke's theme in it. Mm. Uh, and it's very comparable, at least in my opinion, Josh, when I see someone break down behind the wheel, when they stop their car, I think of John Locke at the end of Deus Ex Machina personally. And so even from the very get go, there are so many comparisons between the Jack of 2007 and, you know, the John Locke that we are used to, which really foreshadows Jack taking on that mantle of man of faith and giving himself a new sense of purpose going into the back half of the series. Oh yeah. I mean, so like, you know, you know, very luckily we can talk about the full scope of the series here, you know? And like, I think that we can, you know, one of like the most immediate things is what he's reading is he's reading. John Locke is dead, right? Like Jeremy Bentham is dead, but that's John Locke. And this is, and this is a John Locke who, as we'll find out in season five has approached him several times talking about like you need to go back to the island christian told me to move the island and this is a jack who has sort of just been coming to terms with that while simultaneously trying to move on with his life and so to have john Locke dead it really is symbolic and significant for him and that like that is now a piece of his life that sort of died off in a manner of speaking, though it is also going to give him a sense of purpose to go back to that point in time in his life. But he, you know, he ran into Locke, we'll see in the life and death of Jeremy Bentham, you know, while he was already starting to tailspin. He's growing out the beard. He's already starting to lose it a bit. Um, And even though he turns Locke down, he starts doing this thing, right? Where he's going around flying all over the world. I mean, listen, he wouldn't be tearing open all those atlases and, you know, putting Walden books out of business. Uh, if he didn't have thoughts about that before he found the obituary, you know, so that's, that's already happening for him. Uh, and so he's already like John Locke is already living rent free in Jack Shepard's head in this moment in time. Um, but now that Locke is dead, uh, this really becomes, uh, you know, a ghost story of sorts. Mm. Uh, you know, John Locke's ghost lives within Jack from this moment forward to the point that like their, their spirits become really intertwined in the afterlife, uh, that yeah. they have a very powerful story together. Yeah, that um, he's the, he's the one to wake him up, you know? And, uh, and in many ways, it's like, uh, Jack, Jack's ghost, if you want to call them that, I mean, I will, you know, the sideways Jack is going to be the one that kind of like gets Locke literally back on his feet and feeling like you did it, man. Like you, you didn't die for nothing. Uh, and then it's going to be Locke that gives Jack that first little jolt of like, we did this, we did this together. Uh, like he's not going to be the one that wakes him up all the way. Um, but there's, there is a, a degree like in life, I think 
the the lock uh, journey through Jack is something that Jack is able to reckon with. There's a lot of other baggage that he needs to process on the other side of all of this. Um, but this is a moment where he is he is registering that this person is dead, and this is the person who is so emblematic of all of the ways that Jack feels like he screwed this one up, that he got this one wrong to the point that like. He can't even get in touch with Kate because he's screwed that up. Kate's gone. She's not answering his calls anymore. Uh, that like for Jack, this is a moment where like, if he can't go back, then he should just go. Uh, and yeah. that takes him to the edge of this bridge where he is about to throw himself over. If not for the fact that there's this crash that he himself caused, which itself is sort of uh, emblematic of everything that Jack is experiencing right now. Well, yeah, sort of. And, but also, you know, it's a little paralleled, obviously, to the p- fact that Jack, you know, fashions himself a hero and a leader from the get go of the pilot, saving everyone from a crash. This time he is branding himself a hero doing so as well. But to your point, it's perverted in a way. Like, yes, this episode is looking at yourself through the looking glass, but it's almost like looking at yourself through a funhouse mirror in that you're looking back at yourself, but almost a distorted version of who you are as a person. And again, granted Jack did not purposely cause this, right? He happened to just leave his car. Cause he had, as you said, every intention of dying here. Fun fact. So the bridge where Jack, you know, nearly jumps off of is apparently the sixth street viaduct in Los Angeles. This is the only scene in the entirety of lost Josh to be filmed off Island to be filmed on in the mainland United States. And look, we're going to talk about all the clues that are existing throughout this episode as to the final scene of that scene episode. In London at, at one point. Well, yeah, I, I guess I, you know, in, in the, in the mainland U S I should say. Uh, but I think that's one indicator as to like, we are definitively not on the Island anymore. We are off Island in so many ways, but I, I do want to go back to this idea. Cause I mean, it's a very significant moment for Jack, uh, a thing that, you know, also lies directly in opposition to how he's going to end season six, which is going to be a death, but more of a sacrificial one than one that is suicidal. So I mean, it's it's incredibly significant for this character, for this man who really almost gives himself a martyr complex sometimes. Like, I have to fix things. You know, I will die if it means saving someone else. For him to end it all, it might be a bit of a martyr complex. And that he's like, I've screwed so many things up. I might as well remove myself from the equation. But it's still such a significant departure from the Jack that we're used to at this point that he feels like he has made so many mistakes and has lost touch with so many people that anchor him back to his reality that he feels he cannot go on any longer. Jack Shepard is stubborn AF suicidal. He really is not. And this just speaks to how far he has strayed as a character mentally and emotionally from what we're used to. Yeah. I think, you know, uh, when we had our first real Jack flashback episode in white rabbit, what's like the final powerful thing that there's a couple of final powerful things that he hears. One is from his father. You don't have what it takes. Uh, but the other is you should have stayed down Jack. Yeah. And like his whole thing is that he never does. And it's like, he's in this moment where he's probably thinking like, I didn't have what it takes and I should have stayed down. You know, I should have never gotten up. I should have never been the person who like took all of this on. Uh, we'd all be better off if I, if I had it. Um, and I feel like all of that is, is, uh, is, you know, if not for the fact of this, uh, this accident that occurs because of 
what is effectively, you know, a, a cry for help here. Uh, you know, he's like looking out into the unknown, uh, like something like anything help, like, please can, can, can I, we got to go back. Uh, and this thing happens and it's, it's the only thing that, that saves him from the brink. And, uh, you know, with the, with the, the island so far away, at least there's the, there's the urgency of this immediate moment yeah. that Jack can once again feel like himself, which sends him back roaring into the eye of the fire. But that being said, the Jack does not necessarily treat it as an opportunity, right? Which I find so interesting that once again, yes, he's being given, foisted this savior role of like, okay, I have to go save this woman and her child. And even though he is sort of obsessed with it later on, which again speaks to Jad's, uh, Jack's need to fix things. I don't know. It, it almost feels like the way Matthew Fox behaves in response to that crisis almost feels like he's being punished. Right. Like it's almost like the divine spirit just saying like, oh, no, you're not done yet. You know, you're it's like he's in the he's in hell. It's a little hot for heaven. And his punishment is that he has to keep fixing things. He can never rest until he has solved every single crisis. And when one is done, three more pop up. Regarded as like, yes, thank God this happened. I was on my way down a, a bad path. And now this car accident has, you know, saved my existence. No, it, it really does seem like same old shit. For Jack Shepard. And again, that speaks to how far he has fallen, that it feels like he is almost desperately going through the motions, but not necessarily regarding this as an opportunity, more like something he has to do because this is the role he's been playing for all of his life. So let's so that's the future. <laughs> yeah, and, and, this, and this is, by the way, this is how the finale starts. And I love it. If you could describe this episode in one word, it is unconventional and it starts right here that you know we have this immediate pressing stuff with the others coming and charlie down in the looking glass but we take the first five minutes of the two-hour finale in this scene that takes place completely off island i think it is audacious and i love it too because it automatically disorients us from the beginning as to what type of episode this is going to be so let, let's go back to the past you know because we're doing flash forwards now you know, we're yeah. <laughs> we're there. It's happening. Dominic Monaghan's like, oh, great. All right. We're doing flash forward. And they're like, no, not that way. Dominic. Oh, don't do that, Dom. Don't do yeah, it. Don't do this. Uh, who's on first, really? Yeah. Uh, so we go back to the beach and everybody's like getting ready to go. Uh, Jack and Saeed have one final exchange where uh, Saeed basically, you know, tells Jack, like, if this doesn't work, if we die here, you have to keep going. I'm willing to die here, but only if it means we are going to get rescue. Uh, so yeah. no matter what, you got to keep pushing forward. And that's, again, very much foreshadowing the way Jack is going to leave a lot of these people at the end of season six, too. Of, hey, you keep going, looking fo walking forward. Don't look back. I'm going to stay behind and take this one for the team. And Jack, you know, I think sees it here as well. But I think it's a point that is very much going to stick with him down the line when he does make that sacrifice play. Yeah. Uh, so he's he's like, all right, I'll do it. I'll do what you say. He's locked in like Jack is very mission oriented today. Uh, we get great check ins with so many people. The Rose and Bernard one's my favorite uh, where she has him like saying uh, uh, this, like I'm a dentist. I'm not Rambo. I also love her line of like, it, would you change your mind if I help you with the SOS? sign? <laughs> Remember that season two episode? Uh, I know that Bernard is no Rambo. Could he be a Shambo, though? <laughs> Maybe he could be Shambo's brother. Uh, but I, I, it's so great because like we just saw them for the first time in season three last week. And already like all of the Rose and Bernard stuff just keeps flooding back. Uh, like yeah. that, that's how indelible these characters are. 
Yeah, and then meanwhile, we get some not-so-fun season one callbacks. Like, I think Russo is lovingly staring at Aaron, but on the way of, like, I'm going to kidnap him again. But you can't help but think that, right? Considering that last time we saw her in a finale in a major capacity, she took him. Well, it was it was awkward, uh, to say the least, when that went down. Uh, I think for Rousseau, you know, if this is, like, mirror stuff, right? I think, like, she's looking at that baby and being like, how far have I fallen? You know, mm-hmm. like, how far have I fallen in my pursuit of, like, uh, like making myself right and whole again based on everything that was taken away. This is a great Danielle Russo episode, by the way. I mean, this is uh, maybe an all-time Danielle Russo episode. This, yeah, this she's, and like she's, Solitary are yeah. uh, the Danielle Russo episodes. Well, I think in that, from that, it's a more of a performance perspective. Here, she finally accomplishes her goal. She finally sees her daughter, which yeah. is like something she's been dreaming of doing for, you know, 16 years. And she age. gets to, uh, you know, not kick the shit out of the kidnapper the same way that Jack does. But I would still advocate for the elbow to the face to a, a Benjamin Linus who's already been punched in the face nine times uh, deserves high marks on the Benjamin Linus beatdown oh, counter yeah. because it's so satisfying. Yeah, no, it's, so it, it's going to qualify as a beatdown. I agree. If, if we classified Sawyer punching Ben in the face and every man for himself as a beatdown, then Certainly her elbowing him to knock him out later on. I just think it's probably for me, it's like relatively high uh, because it's just it was such a long time coming. Like he deserves the elbow to the face so badly. Um, But everybody's just like having these moments. There's there's you know, there's Hurley who's holding Aaron. uh, He's insisting that clearly Charlie's going to be fine. Uh, There's there's Jin and son and Jin Uh, speaking in English. We have to go home. There's always like in these first few seasons, something that's always guaranteed to make me swell with emotions is Daniel Day Kim speaking English. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, saying, yeah, because we have to go home. He's moved on very much so from Port and Starbird. It's also a very fun mirror to, you know, Jin and Son splitting up in Exodus, where, you know, she gifts him with that book of English words. Now he is sort of gifting her with the English words that he's learned as they split up once more. Yeah. Uh, and the music is just so great here. Uh, There's like a yeah. permutation well, on Hollywood and Vines. I was going to say, like, if you drank every time Hollywood and Vines come up, you'd be full Jack Shepard by the time the episode's over. I think Jim Fell says it pops up nine times over the course of two hours. But what I love about it is we always get different iterations of it. And maybe this is just me projecting, Josh. I feel like whenever, like, things are in trouble or like the journey feels a bit muddled. We hear a much more slower, more deliberate version of it. And then like, for example, when they get here or when they go to the radio tower, it really gets back to that tempo that we're used to, which maybe symbolizes like the entire exodus to the radio tower, how, you know, it it gets confused a bit by the explosions and Ben showing up, but then they gain that sense of purpose right at the end that they had at the beginning. And that's going to fill into that just beautiful scene when the calls made. Yeah. I think it's like, it speaks to the urgency, you know, like uh, it speaks to the momentum. There's like a ferocity to Hollywood and finds here of like, we got to go. We have to leave now. Uh, and I think it's a, it's, uh, in conversation with the raft launch in Exodus because the music is swelling and swelling and swelling and then they leave. And then there's yeah. like a lingering ominous shot of like smoke and danger. And in this case, it's, uh, it's the, Jin the, the, the and Saeed and Bernard who are, who are alone as like the, the, the dong, 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 dong. Yeah, basically, much like you said, much like the rap launch was, oh, this is beautiful. This is hopeful. Oh, but there's still something ominous, you know, that's going to lead into what's to come. Exactly happens here of like, yeah, they're taking off. They're going to get rescued. Oh, wait, there's still a lot of danger happening. Let's not be entirely happy because there's something very, very ominous coming. So, uh, that's the, that's the end of the 
the first act, uh, when we when we come back from commercial, I think we get what I would say is the weakest scene of the episode. Um, Which is saying a lot. It says a lot. I mean, so it's everybody's still journeying. They're they're out on the outskirts. Uh, this is when Naomi says, "What did you do for a living before you became Moses to Doctor Jack?" Uh, she you know wants to talk to him alone. Nobody trusts Juliet, so she gives Juliet a little bit of shade, and then she's basically like, "All right, well, if anything happens to me, yeah, this is this is here's how odd. the phone works. If anything happens to me, here is how a phone works." Yeah, or, hey, uh, we want to do many close-ups of me turning on this phone over the next two hours. So, hey, viewers, this is how it works. If the light turns green, that's good. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, this. I think this also, I remember brought up some questions at the time of, like, okay, wait, was, like, Naomi a plant, uh, not Michael? Did she know she was going to die? Hence, she did this. I just think this was a bit more of a shoehorned in exposition as to what we should be paying attention to the phone. And especially because the phone's going to become more of a prop in the next couple of episodes in season four after Naomi dies that if this feels like a necessary part of the episode. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think like, uh, they're just setting this up. You know, we need we need to know where we're going. Naomi's going to die. They want to build that dr- dramatic uh, standoff between Jack and John. Uh, so, you know, it's fine. It's just the, uh, the dialogue's a little wonky, I think. And it's just yeah. like it, it feels like in retrospect, especially it's like, all right. So this is really just calling the shot that. Well, and Naomi's I think this also me. it's a great microcosm of how, again, we talked about this. We, they don't really know what to do with her. Like, even I feel like the line she said to Jack beforehand are a little odd. Like, I'm not sure why she doesn't trust Juliet considering like she herself is an intruder to this camp as well. It's more so just seems like she's getting in on the bullying of Juliet. Well, it would make sense to me because uh, Naomi might be wary of anybody who's a lot, who's potentially aligned with Benjamin Linus, considering the whole reason she and her crew are there is to apprehend Benjamin Linus. I don't know, but I think at the same time, like she's also heard that Juliet has betrayed Benjamin Linus directly too. You know, I don't she know. Doesn't also, know. These are all brand new dynamics to her, though. And also, and it also feels like we're getting a bit of a repeat of you know Jack, much like he did with Kate's as the whole thing. Anything you can say to me, you can say to her. So you know, we're sort of working through that. But I agree, definitely. I think the lowest ep- scene of the episode, which you know says a lot about the extremely high bar that is happening. Um, all right. So, uh, she says like the, the light's going to turn green when the rock star fixes the thing. Hopefully that's any time now cut to the rock star. <laughs> He's getting his ass kicked. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, but Charlie, uh, I mean, there's so much great Charlie here. So much smarmy Charlie, uh, where, you know, he's immediately giving it back to Bonnie and Greta. I came in my invisible submarine. Don't you see it? Yeah. Uh, especially, you know, very timely given uh, Wonder Woman 1984 coming out uh, this, coming this out. past week. I think a, a questionable call from Charlie to be like, yeah, don't you know Juliet's one of ours now? And they're like, oh, we probably got to tell him, uh, Big Ben, what's going on with it. It's like, don't, don't give that up, Charlie. I don't know. I feel like at this point, Charlie is really just playing mental games like we sort of talked about during at the end of Greatest Hits. Like, that everyone's radio was turned off, you know? Yeah, but now we we at least use this scene to get a, to get a, to know Bonnie and Greta a bit more, which really is I don't know if I call it like good cop, bad cop, more like bad cop, nothing cop. Uh-huh, I really yeah. have no. Even though one of them is supposed to be the the evil cop, right? Uh, oh, listen, evil I, cop. She's she's very misunderstood, Josh. If you got all of her flashbacks Regina. from Regina. 
Yeah, uh, Regina. Re- not to say Regina King or Regina George. No, I forget the name of uh, of Regina's character in Once Upon a Time. But yes, here she is uh, in the flesh. But unfortunately, despite her becoming a big, big character on another Lost based spinoff series, if you will. This is all about Bonnie. Greta is sort of just seems like a, you could replace her with like a mannequin and give her a few lines with a tape recorder. And I think it'd be completely fine. This is all about like Bonnie, Bonnie's rising anger towards being constantly annoyed by Charlie is like the all the moments from the looking glass in this first episode. So she wants to call Ben. Uh, she goes to, to radio him. Charlie sees them go in. There's the blinking yellow light. He remembers everything that Desmond's told him. And he's like, all right. This is all starting to click. The purpose is starting to show up. Like Charlie is deeply unafraid in this entire episode. I wonder. He's locked in. He's there. He just, he's like, for him, it's almost like mechanical at this point. He's made his piece. He's good. Exactly. There's some measure of like, maybe this will work out, but it doesn't seem like he's hanging too much on that. And like the second it becomes clear that it's not going to work out, he's like, all right, this is the process. Just got to turn the key effectively. Uh, It's really, it's really, it's really great stuff from Charlie in this episode. I wonder how much he feels like he's playing with house money. Right. Because remember, when he 100%. made that when he made that dive into the water at the end of Greatest Hits, like he thought that was it. He thought, OK, this is where I die. The fact that he winds up in that moon pool alive, he was, you know, it was extraordinary to him. And obviously now he's facing a much more dangerous situation. But I think to your point, he still has his eyes on the prize of, OK, this is what I need to do. I'm still set on dying, which is going to be the reason why he refuses to open that door when the water comes flooding in later. But you know what? Why not have a little bit of fun while you're going out? And it seems like Charlie is doing so with a couple of people he gets to mess around with Charlie style. All right. So they call Ben. Ben gets the call from Bonnie, Mikhail and Richard, who are playing chess, uh, Lord of the Rings chess in the corner. Uh, and Bonnie should not be breaking radio silence. This is a big thing. And Mikhail is like, Bonnie? What the crap you told well, me? I didn't realize the radio worked in Canada. Exactly. You wouldn't be my girlfriend because you said you were moving to Canada. She was in Canada. Uh, and so they, it's the whole exchange. It's Charlie. Uh, Juliet told him about the station. Uh, all this stuff. Uh, and this is all bad news for Ben, who is panicking on a couple of fronts. One, that uh, people are overhearing this, so they yep. know that he's lied to them about the looking glass being flooded. And then uh, it's sort of like, if this is true, what else is true? Right, and also, like, if this is true, then uh, Ryan and the gang are in big, big doo-doo. Uh, mm-hmm. I just love when Charlie, by the way, uh, when they're like, he won't tell us who he is. He goes, it's Charlie! Yeah. <laughs> tell, tell him I said hi! Yeah, not that they have any real relationship, but I just think it's funny, because I think he just figures, like, he probably knows who I am. Uh, so let's let's go to the attack. Uh, ben has tried to call Ryan and the crew, but it just so happens, he should have called like five minutes earlier. Walkies yeah. are off. Because the others are about to get tricked by the old coconut under the blanket routine. Ferris Bueller style. Classic gag. Uh, And the tents are marked. They're all like, okay, Juliet did her job. We're ready to go. And the music is just so great. Just Mm -hmm. like the strings and like the ominous sense of building dread as we are in the trenches with our gunslingers. Ka is a Dharma wheel. You say true. I say thank you. It's just the suspense is so good. I love Tom waddling through the camp. Yeah, uh, I, love, I, don't, I don't know why you have to send friendly in particular. He definitely seems like more that someone who calls the shots rather than makes the shots. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess, you know, for many reasons, he had to be there. I mean, there's so much 
I mean, first of all, the pyrotechnics here are outstanding. This is Lost's most explosive episode yet, even though we're going to get to it on a much larger capacity in season finales to come. I also love another great Exodus callback, the Bernard whispering, please God, as he fires his gun. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, the last Michael time we heard style. that was yeah, Michael firing off the flare, calling the others to him. Now here's someone praying to God that they are dispelling of the others. So I love, again, the mirror aspect on that. You know what? And maybe in another universe, if we had more LVP points to give, we might give one to Jin here for missing his shots. But it's a, I don't think that's a tough shot with his gun. Yeah, and I kind of feel like Saeed should have had the nine millimeter. Exactly. Like, listen, he's probably the best shot of them all. Like, you take the pistol, Saeed. Give the, yes, Jin was in the military, but it was super long ago. It, arguably the hardest thing to shoot. You know, Jin's not going to be on top shot anytime soon. And that's okay. Uh, and it's fine anyway, because you know what? If Jin does this now, then we don't get the fantastic stuff of Hurley running them over with the Dharma van and Sawyer killing Tom Friendly. Everything so works out. Exactly. Everything works out. Everything works out exactly the way it's supposed to. Uh, so Jin gets knocked out. He gets captured. Ryan's got him. Bernard tries to run away. He gets clotheslined by Mr. Friendly. By the clothesline. Yeah. Uh, elder abuse. And then Jason. Uh, remember Jason? Yeah, not, uh, not uh, annoying, stupid Jason McCormick. But it's not Jason Jason. McCormick. It's other Jason. And he pulls a gun on Saeed. And from the Vista, as everybody is off on the jungle crew, they're watching. They see two explosions Congratulations, Saeed. Big ups to Bernard for making that shot as well. Bernard yeah. now has killed humans. Uh, <laughs> right, you get that blood on your hands, Bernard. Congratulations, not just mouth blood. You know, just uh, have fun living with that. Uh, and there's supposed to be three explosions, Mike, says, says Rose. And Kate says, it didn't work. Uh, and what a great way to end another act, right? For everyone to be watching from the horizon and everyone, everyone looks over to Jack and basically asks, now what? Yeah, well, now what, Mike, is that we return to the future in the immediate aftermath of Jack saving these people from the car crash. He's getting, is, st- he's getting stitched up, and he doesn't mm-hmm. have to pressure some random passerby to do it for him. Now mm-hmm. an actual medical professional is stitching up. But again, another great callback to the pilot. Yes, and another great love of his life shows up just as he is getting stitched up. The timing could not be more perfect with this uh, with with this hero twice over getting a call from a ghost from the past. And by call, I mean a visit because his emergency contact, Sarah, is in the house. Ghost of girlfriends past. Sorry, no visitors in the ER. It's okay. She. We used to be married. Come on in. What happened? It was uh, a car accident. Are you okay? Yeah. Yeah, I'm fine. Are you drinking again? No. Are you Jack? No. Why did you come down here, Sarah? I'm still listed as your emergency contact. <sighs> what were you doing driving around at two o'clock in the morning? Mm-hmm. 
Goodbye, Sarah. That yeah, is a, a series wrap, wrap on Julie, right? Yeah, series wrap on Julie Bowen, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. And unfortunately, the last thing she does is deny Chuck a ride home. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it, it's tough. Like, I I know uh, the, the instinct, and I'm not going to fight it too hard to, like, just, like, knock Sarah for all of this. But she came. She came. Like, the fact that she came at all. That yeah. she's still listed as Jack's emergency contact all these years later after everything they've been through. You know, um, you know, it's, it's been probably like what, like three years and he's oh, like, yeah, at least it, it's like, it's, it's very, 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 very sad. And in the middle of the night, she finds out that her ex husband is in the hospital. Uh, she's the emergency contact. And because she doesn't know what else to do, she at least she goes and she goes and she sees him in person and he's alive and functional, if barely. Um, and she chooses not to give a ride home to the man who was kind of terrible to her in a lot of ways, uh, even if they were terrible to each other. Like he was like kind of like dangerously terrible to her in, in certain regards. The whole thing is just like it's messy it's sad. My predominant feeling when I watch this scene isn't like rage towards Sarah for not like, you know, you're, you're the, you're one of the oceanic six. You've got money. Call an Uber uh, you know, or a taxi or whatever. You can get a car. Um, my predominant feeling is looking at just how pathetic poor Jack is. Um, and like seeing like, it's not that like he had Sarah as his emergency, emergency contact in any kind of manipulative way, I don't think. And I think that he's probably not spent, spent a ton of time thinking about Sarah. He's got bigger problems now, and that is the flow of life. You know, the thing that was your biggest obstacle once may not always be your biggest obstacle, but then you're faced with it again. And it is just yet another reminder for him of the ways in which he's failed. Uh, and in sort of this moment of like true wistful sorrow, he's like, can I get a ride? And when she says no, he has this like, well, yeah, you know, and it's just like another, it's like, it's not unexpected. It's not, it's not really anything other than just like another notch in the loss column, but one that he can weather in the face of everything else he's weathered up to this point. Um, it's just intensely sad. It's such a sad contrast to who Jack was with this woman the last time we saw her, uh, and who Jack is now. It's just, it's it, the whole thing just breaks my heart. She could have at least called him a cab. <laughs> Fine, whatever. Yeah, but like, I don't think it's yeah. that big of a deal. No, but she could have responded with like, sure, I'll call. I mean, I do think there's also a thing of like clearly seeing when somebody needs help. And I do agree that I think her coming out to see him. She didn't need to come at all. No, you know? she didn't need to come at all. She, it does speak volumes. And the fact that like she was in the same room with him, considering that he was borderline stalking her. Really the there's, last there's no borderline about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he, was, he mean, was stalking her. We saw yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. So like it, it takes a lot of gumption for her to, to come out and, and do this, uh, especially pregnant as well, because it is, you know, she is she's caring for two in many ways. So it probably hits Jack really hard to see that as well. Right. Unintentionally. So of like, damn, if I wasn't so concerned with other stuff, I could have started a family with this woman. But because I'm me, of course, I had to go and screw everything up. And to your point, yeah, I don't think there's any sort of manipulation in Jack listing Sarah as his emergency contact. I actually think unconsciously it represents the fact that he is living with and obsessed with the past in so many yeah. ways, uh, with the island mostly, but also a representation to him of like, yeah, you know, I, I was obsessed with, with breaking it off with Sarah for so long that it led me down a certain spiral back then. And it just so happens that that's the reason why I kept her on. 
And I also do think in my heart of hearts that like Jack and Sarah do certainly still share a part of each other that like loves each other, sort of like Sawyer and Kate, how it's not going to be the one, but like you always hold love for someone who is such a big stepping stone in your life to get you to your final destination. And so I do think Sarah certainly has that with Jack. I mean, I'll spoil it. I'm giving an LVP just because not only is it, you know, few and far between to give out LVP points, but just just say you'll call him a cab. A lot you of know, people die in this episode, Mike. There are many people that I would give LVP points to before Sarah, but you do you. I'm not I'm not going to like I said, I'm not going to fight it too hard, but I, I don't think she deserves it here. I think the fact that she shows up at all to this person who victimized her uh, is I wouldn't even necessarily say impressive so much as it's courageous. Uh, yeah. And I think a testament it's, to, it's, to it's her character. It's mature. It's, it's very mature. mature. But I think it's immature to not be like, hey, uh, I know you're having a big t- t- trouble right now. Let she, me. Uh, she sees him. He's standing on his own two feet. You know, he can call it. Apparently he's stumbling on his own two feet. You know, he's alive. He's not dead. And I think that that's all she came to check in on. And probably it was like an impulsive thing of like, I shouldn't go, but I'm going to go. And she goes, uh, you know, I, I, I don't I don't hold it against her that she doesn't call it cab. Uh, I hold it more against Bonnie and Greta for being idiots. Uh, anyway, let's get to, let's get back to the beach. Uh, we get, uh, uh, <laughs> well, guess, well, let's go about the beach more so about the hill in this. Yeah. Game. So let's go back to the hill. It's our, it's our, it's a return of live together, die alone, but in a very different way. And it's incredible. Why were there only two explosions? Maybe they didn't have to blow the third tent. But those gunshots, what was He's that? okay, about? Rose. Do you believe that? Listen, they had no idea that we were waiting for them. And Saeed's with your husbands. They're going to be fine, and they're going to be a couple hours behind us. Then we should wait for them here. You go no. on. I... No one gets left behind. If you say live together, die alone to me, Jack, I'm going to punch you in your face. Fair enough, Rose. Fair enough. But we have a plan. And for all we know, it worked. It's going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. Let's just keep moving, okay? So, yeah, we can see that, you know, we're going to see parallels here with Ben's grip slipping with uh, the others when it comes to leadership. It's happening to a smaller extent with Jack here, right? Where they only saw two explosions from their three explosion plan. And Jack's like, don't worry, gang. We're going to be fine as long as we keep going to the radio tower. But obviously, I pulled this clip primarily for if you say live together die alone to me one more time jack i'm going to punch you in your face (laughs) which is probably you know obviously expose was one huge meta moment for the show but this has to make like top 10 meta moments of lost right Uh, it cracked me up it's very much the audience being like we get it jack loves to bloviate and make speeches and this is very much rose speaking on behalf of those jack haters at this point it cracks me up i think it is just so funny. I think it is so, so funny. Uh, and again, just like another, uh, instance of like, um, there is, there's this thing that's going on with, with Bernard and Rose that they're just like popping, you know, they're just back and they're doing it and they're great. And like, it's just like their characters are so fully formed that when they show back up, even if they've taken a full season off, they're just perfect. Uh, so I, I really, I really love all of that. Um, you know what? Actually, I'm going to, I'm going to write in a feedback question for next week. If we could think about other ways that Rose and Bernard could have showed up in season three before greatest hits. I, I wonder if we could have done that. If they, if they made more spark, 
sparse appearances over the course of season three. So it didn't seem so glaring when they suddenly popped up out of nowhere. Um, all right. So back of the looking glass, this is, I, I think more than anything, uh, you know, to the thing that I would love to talk about here rather than going like beat by beat of him, like telling them exactly what he's going to do. I'm going to jam the, I'm going to know the code. And she's like, well, that's a problem, Charlie. Cause only three people know the code. And he's like, I guess I won't need it. I'm going to turn the thing off. Uh, and he's talking about all of these things that like, you know, are just like kind of like fever dream type stuff. Uh, and he says very contentedly when she asks, like, well, what's going to happen to you if this place dra- uh, gets flooded? And he goes, I die. You know, this is Charlie Pace, man of faith in, in full form. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, this is the guy who, uh, Charlie is arriving at the place that Jack is going to get to at the end of this whole show, uh, yes. at the end of the whole series that Charlie is, you know, the man of science, man of faith, like the person who is at that, uh, central point in the Venn diagram is the person who has enough faith to, to, uh, act based on what he both believes and has seen. And he has seen proof positive of Desmond being right. You know, he nearly got like shot in the throat. You know, like he has had these moments where Desmond has saved his life. He has seen enough miracles and has witnessed and experienced enough miracles on this island to know in his mind beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is something higher and holier happening here. Uh, and he's going to act accordingly. This is where Jack ends up going. It's going to mm-hmm. take Jack a much longer time <laughs> to, to get there. But Charlie had to like go through, you know, Charlie Pace had to be put through his paces, whether it was by John Locke as his like, you know, first real teacher, then Mr. Echo and now Desmond, you know, the three wise men have kind of had their influence on Charlie. And this is a guy at this point who fully accepts and embraces all of this. And death is no longer something for him to be afraid of. His purpose is staring him in the face and he's ready to go. Right. I mean, remember, this is the guy who back in season one, Hurley talks all about the numbers and him being worth so much money. And Charlie laughs in his face and thinks it's a joke. He was probably one of the biggest skeptics on the show from the jump and now for him to fully embrace his destiny and be like yes uh some scottish guy who says he could see the future told me exactly what i need to do and this is what's going to happen and he says it with complete abandon like you says just shows how far charlie has come that he realized that miracles do happen on this island and he doesn't even know that there is a miracle man on the island if he had known what happened to Locke, i mean who knows how much even more abandoned he would have, you know, talked all about this. He would have given away his like social security number if he wanted to as well, all of his major email account passwords, because he knows, you know, this is what needs to happen to him. And yes, this might be unrealistic, but this is an island that takes place at a completely different reality. Yeah. Um, all right. Back at the beach, uh, we've got Tom is like freaking out on the phone. They killed some of us. Uh, the good news is they've got a few people. Uh, they've got a few people. Uh, the, they've got Jin. They've got Saeed. They know they got Jaraquan and the dentist. And Poor the Bernard dentist. for just not even being regarded with his name from Tom Friendly. He's just the dentist. Well, maybe they figure because you're going to hear uh, something about a Nadler later on mm-hmm. in the episode uh, that perhaps they don't want to name Bernard Nadler so as to make that connection so obvious, even why though it goes literally nowhere. Why don't they say Jaraquan and the lone Taley left? Remember yeah. that Bernard is a Taley and everyone yeah. else died except him. Taley. Yeah, uh, but they're going to uh, they're going to start by trying to interrogate Saeed. Saeed has none of it. He spits in Ryan's mouth. <laughs> yeah. And Ryan's like, hey, nobody gets the first base here with me. And then he yeah. knocks him out with the butt of the gun. And I mean, looking at this from <laughs> Ben's first base, if so, I've been doing it wrong. <laughs> 
<laughs> listen, I don't know what kind of baseball you're playing. Right, I don't want to talk uh, about it. <laughs> but but Ben, I mean, Michael Emerson's performance is so interesting in this episode in that, at least from what I can recall, Josh, I don't remember a time when we see Ben's volume at this point. We've certainly seen him like get loud before. What the F? But he gets loud in a very different regard to the point where he almost gets shrill when he is like yelling at Tom over the radio and like the insistence with which he demands, like shoot Quan. Uh, you know, obviously he knows that son is pregnant. Uh, so he knows that he has some leverage there, but well, you talked about before the desperation with which Ben is approaching this situation now with everything unraveling around him is rather unprecedented with what we've seen with the character so far. Yeah. Well, he's freaking out. You know, he went to the cabin and all of this is spiraled out of being at the cabin. It's, uh, it's not good. In fact, uh, Mike, it might be bad. Uh, so we've got everything that's going on here. Uh, they, they're, they're able to get Bernard to talk by, uh, nearly killing Jin. Racist Ryan says to Jin, sayonara. Um, yeah, and then and so Bernard does, you know, talk about the radio tower plan. Which look, yes, he may out it, but also the guy admitted, Rose made him admit he's not Rambo. You know, he's not someone who's who's fine with torture and watching other people get killed. He's, he's, he's not Rambo. He's Bernard. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's the dentist. Yeah, he's the dentist. Uh, and he gets off on the pain he inflicts. Oh uh, God, yeah, I can imagine Bernard, Sam Anderson in a leather jacket singing that is now what I want to see. Killed everybody by that tent, and afterwards, full body shudder. Uh, so he has uh, he has also identified Carl mm-hmm. as the person who, and, and you can off. see the gears in Ben's head just start going into hyperdrive at this point as he's yeah, internally out. just like I hate Carl so much i hate that guy uh in the morning uh ben is getting ready to go to the radio tower uh and he says richard take everyone to the temple like we planned keep going and richard's like i'm trying i'm trying to remember is this the first mention of the temple because ben in the break says like we're going someplace old but i can't remember if they've ever said the temple before if they didn't say it a couple episodes ago then this would i think be the first time they mentioned the temple uh so early shout out to what i believe would chart as one of the most disappointing reveals for some people, you know, I think uh, the the temple arc is not exactly uh, looked back on super fondly. Um, we can get there, you know. We will. We'll get yeah, there. I'm another man who uh, likes baseballs, Dogen loves baseball loves baseball uh but richard's like hey, you know what i don't know that you should go uh considering like people have a lot of questions yeah he's right like now. here hang on, let me just let's take a, a quick powwow are you okay are, are you, you all right all right because like people don't know what happened to Locke. people are wondering about jacob now or i uh, there's a rumor that a bunch of people of ours died like, that everybody the- went to the beach is dead and Ben's like well not everyone I was like, oh, well, that's not helping things, Ben. Yeah. Yeah, Ben's losing it. He's losing it here. Um, Alex wants to know where Ben is going. And I love Michael Emerson's delivery. Michael Emerson is incredible in this episode, but I love his delivery. Oh, well, I thought I might go for a walk. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and Alex tries to, you know, call his blood, but being like, well, I'm coming with you. He goes, okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think that that would be great. You'd like to go and see Carl again, right? Let's go. We're leaving yeah. in friend. And so we'll talk about this later when he says, you know, he claims he's delivering her to her new family. I do wonder if part of this is Ben is still so convinced he can talk 815 out of calling the freighter that he like wants to watch Alex 
you know, see him essentially like, I wouldn't be surprised if, if his master plan calls for him like murdering Carl. So he essentially wants her to, to want her, wants her to watch his daddy flex. I'm yeah. being like, look what I can do. He's mad. You know, no, he's never tried to undermine me. He's a very sick person is very mad right now. And I think uh, that's a, you know, if, if, I, I don't know where this would have all ultimately gone. Uh, you know, it's hard, hard to think about, but you know, he's starting to, he's making choices right now that are all going to lead to her death. Uh, so, you know, none of it's very good including uh, when Richard says, like, you're one man against 40. What are you going to do? He says, I'm going to talk them out of it. And it's just this incredible overestimation of his abilities that will lead directly to Alex getting killed. And I love it, though. I love the hubris of it because he is someone who we talked about this with Locke in The Man Behind the Curtain. Ben suffers from the exact same thing where he gets a small victory, right? He thought he defeated John Locke, the the uh, heir apparent to his throne. And now he's riding high. He's like, yep, I can do anything now. I can I can move up the timetable. I can convince 40 people to not call for what they think is rescue. And I also think it's interesting in that, you know, Richard says one man against 40 people. Ben is going to tell Jack later that I killed 40 people. So I think he again, he has this false idea that Ben Linus is almost like beyond the realms of men. You know, like he has taken down 40 people before. How can he not take down 40 people? He believes the hype. He believes the hype. He's drinking his own. uh, He's high on his own supply, as they say. Uh, So meanwhile, uh, everyone in the jungle, we've stopped down at the creek. Yeah, you know, the creek, the one. uh, And Kate and Sawyer are going to have a talk where Kate's like, something's wrong. (laughs) Sawyer with the line of 2020. Lots of things are wrong, wrong. Kate. Yeah, so this is, you know, our, our like a uh, requisite skate scene for the episode to send off season three. It's been a tempestuous season for Kate and Sawyer, to say the least. They did uh, round the bases in a manner of speaking, but they also got in a bunch of arguments. They did end up sleeping together by the end of the season. But as you pointed out before, post Briggs Sawyer is very much a different person at the moment, uh, you know, where essentially she wants to go back, make sure everyone's all right. He just sort of like spits at her like, yeah, there's always someone to go back back right. for. And Kate essentially stops him like, what is up with you? Yeah. You have been acting super weird since Log gave you that tape recorder. And to the point where she literally splashes with him, claiming he is metaphorically and literally a sleepwalking since the events of the break. It's like you don't care about anything anymore. Yeah, it's like I forget caring about, uh, you know, our, our friends. You don't care about anything. And when did you start calling me Kate? Yes, uh, um, which maybe it's she should because Kate brings up the pregnancy rumors that the others were possibly thinking about. And uh, Sawyer, this is like the shaking headed Sawyer line where he just spits back at her. Well, let's hope you're not pregnant. You're not. And it's just like, oh, James. But at the same time, again, not to uh, not to support his statement, but we've talked about this at the end of the break. He is in an incredibly vulnerable space. He's in a dark place. You know, he just he just killed the boogeyman and it felt awful. You know, it yeah. felt awful. He's uh, you know, I, I think in the way that we're talking about how like Locke, the ghost of Locke living rent free in Jack's head in the future, like the ghost of Anthony Cooper, probably like the memory of everything he just did is just like haunting him. Well, and especially like I do think as as incorrect as Cooper was geographically, the idea of a little hot for heaven is probably reverberating in Sawyer's head yes. as well. Right. This idea of like maybe I am being punished for all the bad crap that I've done. And so we now go back to season one, almost like self self-flagellating Sawyer of I don't deserve to you know be with anybody. I'm a bad person, which is why he is now continuing to put himself on his own island, not even opening up to, to Kate, who is one of the only people who knows 
the whole James Ford origin story on paper, you would think he'd be like, she'd be the first one for him to go to, but even she, he is shutting out. Yeah. And you know, when uh, she says I might be pregnant, he says, let's hope you're not. It's like a really terrible thing to say. Um, But where, where I think it comes from is, you know, seen in the way he reacted to learning about Clementine's existence and not in the dear goo goo gaga variety in the, Oh my God, I'm so, you know, I'm I'm ill equipped to be a father. I'm a bad person. I shouldn't pass myself on to the world. I should should not spill my seed across the earth to create more decrepit children that will just end up growing up like me and will probably repeat the same cycles that I did with Anthony Cooper. It's very sad. Very, very, very sad. Um, All right. So meanwhile, out at sea, uh, Desmond, he's going to wake up with Charlie's greatest hits in his pocket and Charlie's literal greatest hit still humming. Yeah. And also, uh, I believe Damon Lindelof did confirm that because Desmond dove in with Charlie's greatest hits, that that note never made its way to Claire, which is fine. I think it was more of a symbolic thing for Charlie to write than a literal note. To, to give to Claire. How long was Desmond out for then? Was he out for like 12 hours total? Because it was light when Charlie went down, the night passed, and now Desmond wakes up at light again. Yeah, I mean, I think that sounds about right. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's he hit him really hard. He hit him right in the head. Uh, so he, he wakes up right at the crack of dawn, because uh, that's when uh, Mikhail says he's going to be able to get there. Uh, and Mikhail is indeed there, and he's just shooting at Desmond. Uh if he's the smoke monster, Mike, why doesn't he just rip across the water and just annihilate Desmond? Why right, is let me bothering get, to shoot at him? All right, I'm ripping off the Band-Aid here. Let me quote Locke in the last season finale. I was wrong. I'm always wrong. But this time as well, Mikhail <laughs> is not the smoke monster because, Josh, Mikhail is incredibly stupid in this episode. <laughs> he's such a great character, though. He's a, he's a fun character, and I think the whole idea of like never dying is is like a fun runner. But I don't know. There there were some things that Mikhail did in this episode that like showed he's kind of like a doofy lap dog to Benjamin Linus. I was also a little confused by the timing of this because, like you said, I guess Desmond came about. Did Desmond happen to come about right as Mikhail got there? Otherwise, was Mikhail just waiting? For Desmond to wake up so he could start shooting at him. I mean, I can imagine like Mikhail has gotten there and he's taken a couple of minutes to like get ready, and then like he sees a dude pop up from a boat. You know, um, I don't know. I mean, wouldn't Desmond be kind of visible if he was passed on the outrigger? Um, I don't know. I mean, like if he was that far out, he's just like flat down in the outrigger. Maybe you don't notice it from that view. And also keep in mind, Mikhail only has one eye. So I don't know. I don't feel like one is deeply impaired. Being like, oh, I can't see blue because I have one eye. I don't think that that's quite right. I think like, you know, he's off in the far distance. He's flat on his back on a boat that's on the water closer to the horizon. You might miss a detail. I don't know. So, but then Mikhail has to obviously like prep his gun to as shoot. The one, of the, as the one of the two of us with the by far worse vision. Let me speak for the visually impaired. <laughs> like, I think he probably is in his rights to have missed seeing Desmond flat on his back on an outrigger in the middle of the ocean. Okay. So then when Desmond comes about, he immediately grabs his gun, loads it up, and then just in yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah, I think that okay, makes. That makes I mean, sense. I don't know. I, I'm not a fan of Mikhail in this episode for a few reasons, and I, I don't know. I've, maybe if he because you're he, bitter at him for not being better. You should have been the smoke monster, man. 
Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, if you, you know, if you had some better plans in motion, this whole thing could have been avoided. Though I do wonder if Mikhail does end up shooting Desmond here. How much did the rest of the episode change? I like I, you know, and, and this is why I've been saying that I'm, I'm more in support of Mikhail just being his own character rather than being, you know, yet another version of Smokey McSmokerton, because like I love him as a further example of all these idiots who are willing to just like throw themselves on grenades literally in his case to uh, further benjamin linus's agenda i think that there's something very tragically relevant about this idea uh and the ways in which people just you know cowtail to a dictator who is like clearly a liar and has does not have their best interests at heart and really only cares about protecting himself that's right but then the second that someone's like oh no 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 i was lying to them but i'm not lying to you like okay that's fine as long Mm -hmm. as you're not lying to me personally directly i'm fine doing whatever you want me to do i think it's incredibly human and i think that there's a temptation to think that mikhail is just like this uber bad guy who knows so much because he kind of has this mysterious aura about him he doesn't seem to die easily he's got that Rasputin type quality to him but we've seen like powered up people on the show before so if you want to like assign some level of power up to him that's fine Um, or if you just want to say he's just a tough guy Um, but he's also an idiot ultimately Uh, and I think that actually like everything we've talked about with Mikhail throughout these discussions all season long I think has mostly pointed to him being a bit of a of a putz, you know, yeah. like of, of him, like he shouldn't have had to have gotten his ass handed to him by Saeed and everybody at the flame station. He shouldn't have had to, uh, uh, you know, the way that he like walked out of there, uh, and like got caught red handed. He got his ass beat by Jin. Like he got his ass beat by Locke. I yeah. think Kyle kind of sucks. And I think that that's actually like a, a runner with the character. And I, and I think it's, it's like, it's a testament to his character. And that's part of what makes him a good character for me. Yeah, he's a, like a simultaneous punching bag and sort of like whipping boy for the others. But let me also say, OK, so now I, Mikhail is very much a corporeal person. Let me go back to the events of Par Avion. Catherine Austin, Saeed Jarrah, Jennifer Locke. You you dumbasses, you little dummies. He was breathing his chest moving up and down, heaving air in and out to fill his lungs and pump blood through his system. You are three people who I would say maybe more so than even some of the other characters on Lost would know when someone is truly, surely dead for you to be like, well, I guess he's gone. Might as well keep on moseying. Doodle, 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 do. What are you doing? Yeah. What are, what, what's going on here, people? They screwed it up. They screwed it up. Major gaff here. Major, major gaff. And arguably, you could say that that set the dominoes up that leads to what happens to Charlie here. If they had noticed that he was barely breathing, he can find the air. Uh, don't know who I'm fooling. They decide, all right, we're going to keep him captive. Maybe things change in a different way. True, maybe, you know, Naomi gets fixed up by Jack instead of Mikhail. We save him a few beatings here or there, but things completely change. If you just watch his freaking chest move up and down. <laughs> I love it. I think that's great. Uh, so, like, add all those people to the pile of people that are partly responsible for Charlie's death, including Desmond, who let Mikhail go only for a couple yeah. days later to be weathering uh, gunfire from Kyle. I gotta say though, props to Desmond David Hume. Who needs a weight belt, right? Like this yeah, dude exactly. can swim. Yeah, like now it, it sort of like undoes all this talk. I mean, I guess when it came to the looking glass stuff last episode, it was less about the dive down and more so about like, okay, the station is clearly flooded, so you can't you have to be able to hold your breath for very long. Because otherwise it seems like the swim was very easily handled, which is another point against Mikhail for me of like, dude, you don't need scuba gear. 
Like, look at what Desmond just did. You could go swim out there and swim down there freehand. I think you're totally, you don't need to necessarily suit up or anything. But yeah, Desmond makes it down there fairly easily. Yeah. Uh, so he makes it down there and Charlie's like, oh, sweet, Desmond. Oh, you got to hide. Uh, I love Desmond when he bursts out of the moon pool. Charlie, bloody hell. Uh, one of my favorites uh, from, from Desmond. So Desmond needs to go hide in a locker. He's uh, trapped in a locker. Yeah. Desmond goes, uh, Desmond goes to the locker. And I love Charlie trying to cover by singing "You All Everybody," which you know we you haven't heard, everybody? we haven't heard on you Island. Since, yes, and again, the pilot when he's you know trying to to sort of map with Kate or talk on their on their walk up the mountain by singing "You All Everybody." Uh, it's again a very fun callback to the way this series starts. Yeah, I like it. He gets another punch to the face because, of course, you know this is what needs to happen. Uh, so he gets he gets punched in the head, and then Desmond is hiding in the locker. Uh, so we'll we'll check in on Desmond in a little while once Mikhail shows up. Meanwhile, in the future, we flash forward once again. I love it. Back to the future, Mike. Mm -hmm. Um, Jack and his shaky hands. He's checking the chart of the woman he saved. And here comes Dr. Rob Hamill, new chief of surgery. I like this guy. Yeah, I'm I'm liking Rob Hamill. Who would have thought? There's one thing he does that I don't like, but everything else, I like Dr. Hamill. Who would have thought that someone with the last name Hamill would make a drop-in appearance on the season finale of a critically acclaimed TV show and garner so much support? But we are Hamill stands on this podcast. We love it. Dr. Hamill, what's going on? And Dr. Hamill, who loves meeting Jack Dr. Shepard... The hero twice over. A little hint. Mm-hmm. Why? Why else? Why would he be a hero twice over? Is it because he saved two people? Is it because he? I don't know. Maybe is a survivor of Oceanic Eight One Five, and this takes place in the future, Mike. Perhaps, perhaps. But Jack, you know, he, they're sort of talking through the charts here, assuming this is at St. Sebastian. And Jack is really pushing this idea of, OK, uh, I want to operate on her. Yeah. And Hamill's just giving so much side eye to this. He says, no, 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 this is not your patient. This is Dr. Gary Nadler, not to be confused with the dentist that this is his patient. Yeah. Uh, Gary Nadler. Uh What's his relation to Bernard? Do we think? I think Bernard has a has a uh, a brethren, a family where every sibling is a different medical profession. Mm-hmm. So I think there's like an orthopedic brother, Lenny. Uh, there is uh, there's an eye doctor, Ollie. Like there's there's all sorts of. Nadler I want to believe that Gary Nadler is played by Jim O'Hare of Parks and Rec fame. Yeah, I think it needs to be like all like kind of fuddy duddy gray haired white men, you know, like I I think like uh, have like a Bo Bridges play Terry, uh, Terry Nadler. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why that's the first one I thought of was Bo Bridges. (laughs) All right, let's call Bo Bridges up, see if we can't bring him along for the ride. Uh, But Jack really wants to do it himself. And Dr. Nadler says, you've done enough. Everything's under control. Go home. Have a drink. You deserve it. All right. Ain't happy orders. I'll have very a drink. obviously traumatized drunk person to go home and have a drink. Well, listen, you know, he's not a psychologist. He's a doctor, uh, but he, he's a doctor. And like, you got to be able to smell that this dude's drunk. Look at him. Um, and one of my favorite scenes from the episode is here. This is what we were talking about before. Jack leaves the room. The Jakina score starts to roar and then it suddenly disappears. And it just really is just a, a really nice touch to emphasize Jack's PTSD that he's not on the island anymore. He's just in life. But life is hard enough, especially with everything that he has lived through. And I think it also represents sort of like the difference between 
the way Jack at least thinks he's presenting himself and what's going on in his head, which is just entire swelling music blaring in his head 24 seven. And then just pure silence on the outside as he's trying to keep up appearances and like give a little friendly yell to the kiddo with the arm in his sling that's waiting in the waiting room. Yeah. So it gives him a quick hello uh, back with the jungle crew. Uh, this is when Sawyer's going to announce his departure. Uh, I'm so going what, back. What, what do you think? Like, do you think it was just after the creek? He was just mulling it over in his head until they finally get to the field for him to announce that he's going back. Yeah, I think he probably thinks that Kate is right. Uh, and also he feels useless here and he wants to feel useful again. He like this is like maybe this is how he feels like he can like put himself back. You know, is mm-hmm. like I, I need to show up and be the leader that Hurley wanted me to be that Hurley told me to be. Uh, and so he's making a leadership call to the point that he says to Jack's like, I'm not asking, you know, right. I'm telling you I'm going. Uh, and this is Sawyer, I think, in a in a very big way. This is, you know, he's making a pro Sawyer choice. Uh, this is something that like he feels like he can't, you know, he's probably still going to be wallowing in all of the horror that he has just experienced. And that's going to weigh him down for a bit. Um, but I also think that there is a degree to which Sawyer feels like I need to, like, do something useful for the group here right now and stop sulking and actually get something done. Uh, and he thinks that at the very least, like, he might be able to save uh, the people who are left behind. And if he's wrong and he gets killed, so much the better. He's already exactly. fulfilled his purpose. Wait, he's he's another person who, much like Saeed and to a certain extent Jack, take on in the past two episodes of like, hey, you know what? I'm going to go through with this. And if I end up dead, it's fine. It was for a good cause. Uh, yeah. So it's like simultaneously like suicidal, but also sacrificial why do you think he ultimately refuses Kate to go? Is it a danger thing of like, I don't want you to die alongside me? Yeah, because I think that there's probably a degree to which that he does plan on not making it back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, um, you know, for Sawyer, you know, if before, like, I don't have anything to go back for was sort of his refrain. I think now, like, well, you know, more and more so Kate's refrain for Sawyer, you know, like now, like how, how, how much more does he believe that considering he is, uh, you know, he killed Anthony Cooper. That's done. Yeah. What does he have to go back for right now? Well, he's going to find out someone that he does want to go back for in the future because Juliet decides to go alongside him. And we'll get to this conversation later. I do love the pairing of these two characters in many ways, because in this moment, these are two people who feel like they need redemption right now for bad things they have done in the past. And Juliet is certainly trying to work her way up that path already, whereas Sawyer is sort of starting there. But I do love that both of these characters separately, but together see an opportunity for them to do so. Yeah. Uh, and I think like it's, you know, when you, when you drill down further, if you want to be more kind to Sawyer right now, maybe it's like, uh, he's got nothing to go back for, but he has things to stay here and fight for is mm-hmm. where Sawyer's at at this point. Um, but yeah, he's going to team up with Juliet and the, the Sawyer Juliet stuff is going to be great in this episode. Um, but like the r- more romantic stuff is going to be a little murky for Jack, right? Cause like he's going to, uh, Juliet kisses him. And then, uh, and then we'll, we'll put a pin in that because we're going to get to something very soon that muddles that kiss. Yeah. So Juliet kisses, well, Juliet kisses Jack, you know? What's he going to say? No. You know, he, he, she kisses him. She kisses Jack and he's, and she says, don't wait up. And I, I think Juliet and Jack have been in the trenches together, whether or not like he's in love with her or whatever. I think that like at the very least, he cares about her a ton. Uh, mm-hmm. I think he cares about her in the more than friends variety. Um, I don't think that she is a friend to him. 
I think that there is something a lot deeper that has been happening between Jack and Juliet here. Uh, so, you know, like it's a, it's a strange moment. Things are very emotional here. Life is a wild ride. Mike Bloom, uh, who knows if these people will ever see each other again. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's nice. Everybody seems to be happy with this, except for Kate doesn't seem to love it. Do you uh, think Jack should have played it off by like kissing Sawyer too? I mean, like, what's 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 Jack going to do, Mike? Juliet kisses him and he's going to be like, oh, no, sorry. It's not like that. <laughs> She's about to go on the suicide mission. You know, like, I feel like uh, that I, know, I, I, I feel like Juliet, like, I don't think this is the first time that Juliet kisses Jack. Oh, yeah, I don't I don't think that's the case at all. Really? Yeah, I, I think if we did, it would be a much bigger deal. I think we would have seen something on Jack's face if that happened. I feel like uh, if they've been smooching, uh, you've been smooching with, <laughs> you've been smooching everybody, uh, Home Alone 2 style. Uh, like, I feel like uh, it's a little weird for us not to have seen that. Uh, so I, I, I think I pretty uh pretty firmly disagree with the team. i don't know i mean it wasn't the whole point of this like back quarter of the season that we barely saw anything from jack and juliet in big general thing to miss i think i think that that's a pretty big thing to miss personally. i don't know i i just the way it played to me did not make it seem like this is their first kiss ever and if it did i don't know i guess maybe it was that juliet never thought she'd come back so she thought she'd kiss jack but the way it came across to me did not necessarily be like oh this is their first kiss yeah um, I think like Jack and Juliet's thing is is very interesting and, and complicated. And even though they certainly do not end up together or anything like that, I think that there is a very real way in which these two people saved each other's lives. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, like, I'll say what I said before, like Jack has a lot of love in his heart. I do think he has some love for Juliet because Juliet time. played a big part there in his is, life. It's very clear that these two people have some love for each other because like they feel like they created something together, right? As yeah. evidenced by the fact that like when they're dead, when they're gone, and we get to see what happens next to them in their like shared yeah. experience. They, they literally create someone, yeah. You know, so like I think that they, you know, their time together was very short, but it was very deep. Very, very, very deep. Um, but I don't think that, uh, you know, like massive kissy kissy face is necessary for something very, very, very deep and even romantic. And I, I take this as the first one. I think it would be a very odd choice uh, for, and, and I, there's nothing to really suggest that to me, but you know, mileage may vary and that's totally fine. Um, Kate's clearly not thrilled either no. way. Uh, back at the looking glass, uh, Charlie's coming up with a song, uh, something about uh, uh, better swim out. You better go dive into no. the secret station where you're going to go die. Charlie uh, Pace, you're going to drown. So, it's so like a Christmas like, song he's thinking Is Charlie about. going in full, like, parody artist when he gets off the yeah. island now? Charlie's thinking in his mind that Christmas is just around the corner, you know, because uh, where they are in the timeline right now, they're just a little while out from Christmas Eve, right? The constant's a few episodes away. Mm -hmm. So he's like, I got to bring some Christmas cheer to the island. Uh, well, if I survive this one, then I'm going to tell them the full story, and it's going to be really, really fun. Cheers the opposite of what he's giving right now because Bonnie is pulling like a full like what about Bob of Richard Dreyfus just like going eight over yeah. Charlie's annoying singing as she just sits there essentially waiting for orders to kill him she hopes. Yeah. Well she just starts like marching off towards the Desmond locker and what is she going for? You know she seems to be going off for a weapon but as far as we know the only weapon in the locker is the spear gun so she's going to go to get the spear gun to what? Spear Charlie? <laughs> she really hates singing Josh. She <laughs> 
really, really hate singing. <laughs> really, really funny. Uh, Mikhail arrives. I thought you were in assignment in Canada. This is one of my <laughs> favorite, favorite moments. Uh, he's, like, he's like, no, the more I say it, the more I realize how ridiculous that sounds. Like, yeah. I didn't really let it roll around in my head that much. But it actually works out really nicely for Charlie's sake that of all people, Mikhail is the one to sort of come here because Charlie is able to like immediately get in this guy's head and say, like, I mean, especially because Mikhail was the guy who manned the communication station on the island before it went up in flames. Charlie doesn't know that this was the case. I don't know. Maybe Saeed told it to him. But he essentially is now telling the comms guy, like, yeah, essentially your job was made redundant because Ben ordered these two women to block all your communications. Yeah. Uh, really, really, really funny. Uh, he's he's going to, you know, really start to play mind games with Mikhail. Mikhail is going to go ahead and call Ben over the radio. Why don't we listen? in on that whole conversation you have to understand everything i did i did for the island the island told you it was necessary for you to jam your own people yes it did you've always been a loyalist mikhail now i'm asking you to trust me to trust jacob who told me to do this why would jacob ask you to lie to your own people because this island is under assault by forces stronger than anything it's had to deal with in many, many years. And we are meant to protect it, Mikhail, by any means necessary. The jamming was for everyone's security. We are in a serious situation here. So why not trust me? I made a mistake. I should have told you, and I apologize. Mikhail, are you still there? Yes. I need you to help me. I need you to help me clean up this mess that I've made. I need you to kill Charlie. Make sure that the jamming mechanism continues to function at all costs. And we can't risk Greta and Bonnie telling the others about what we've done, so you'll have to take care of them, too. How do I know you didn't say the same thing to them about me? Because if I had, Mikhail, you'd already be dead. love this scene for so many reasons because it's such a turn over the course of less than two minutes right it's it's showing that why ben became the man that he is right now where he just stepped in it he got caught in a lie uh where mikhail's basically saying like hey you made my job redundant and you lied to us about the looking glass station and ben is able to turn it all around and it's due to both i think his own uh prowess but also mikhail's as we talked about maybe just uh a believability or gullibility when it comes to Ben's words of like, yes, you're right. I made a mistake and I'm sorry, but listen, I'm going to trust you now. This is what you need to do. Yeah. And he does end up like uh, he, half of what he instructs ends up coming true. Uh, he does get Mikhail to try to accomplish what he instructs there, but just listening to Ben who again, it has everything falling a- apart around him right now, him being able to essentially talk Mikhail off the ledge of betraying him and being like, Listen, you're still my number one guy. This is what I need you to do. It's a pretty masterful piece of work. He's, he, you know, he's very good at working a certain type of person. Uh, he, he really is. It's, I think it's, you know, uh, Mikhail's a believer. 
You know, yeah. he wants he wants to believe. Uh, and so is John Locke. And I think it's why he's able to get one over on John Locke often. You know, not yeah. always, but sometimes. And it's also, you know, I think what also gives a lot of fantastic retrospect to this episode is like knowing what's coming from the island to, to the island for Ben Linus. You know, I love that he tries to couch this all of like they're coming for us. They're going to kill us all when really like they're only really coming for Benjamin Linus. And so he knows that it's a huge personal threat to him and him trying to really talk everyone to doing like, no, you have to do this for the sake of the island, for the sake of us all is just a fantastically like selfish you know pitch that he's making to everyone to do his bidding yeah uh it's great and mikhail's just like why didn't you tell me about all this stuff he's like well mikhail that was part that was the biggest mistake of all yeah oh i need you to clean up this mess i made i'm so sorry and mikhail's like okay dad yeah. <laughs> it's just like he's so on board okay this is strike one he's so on board mikhail is such a dummy this has been my whole thing is like i've been waiting for this like mikhail's end game is like He's just a he's just a turd who follows the leader. He yeah, does no real so, thinking for himself on any of this. And it's so interesting given to the very first time we see him, right? When we're like, oh, he's the last surviving member of the Dharma Initiative. Right. Like he's this lone soldier, apparently, who's staked out in his own farm. No, he's a stooge. He's a foot soldier. He's a yeah. one-eyed foot soldier. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, oh, Mikhail, you dummy. You dumb, dumb, dummy. All right, let's go back to the jungle. Uh, let's actually, how about this? Back-to-back sounds. Uh, we're yeah, going yeah, to back-to-back-to-back-to-back sounds. Look, we're, we're getting deep into the episode, so let's, let's, let's start pulling some stuff in. Uh, Jack uh, sees that Kate has pulled over uh, as they're still marching. Uh, and he's, he's got a thing he'd like to talk to her about. You okay? Yeah, I just... I didn't mean it, you know. What? Sawyer. When he said that he didn't want you to go with him, he didn't mean it. He didn't mean it. Why'd he say it? I was trying to protect you. That's why I asked you not to come back for me. Hey. Why are you sticking up for Sawyer? He'd never do it for you. Because I love you. So this is an incredibly complicated admission from Jack Shepard. I will say maybe not the best answer to the question. Why are you sticking up for Sawyer? Yeah, I think, you know, he's tired of holding it in. Yeah, but like, so so you would say like if she asked him, like, what do you want on your sandwich? He would have said, I love you. He was just waiting to say it. Yeah, he's just like, he couldn't, uh, he couldn't, he couldn't resist. Uh, But like the reason that he's, he's sticking up for Sawyer, the reason that he's, uh, it's, it's not that he's sticking up for Sawyer. Exactly. No, I mean, essentially, he's answering the question she asked previously of like, you know, why did you not? Why did you tell me not to come back for you? Right. That's essentially he's sticking up for Sawyer in that he understands what it's like to keep the ones you love at a far distance to protect them. Yeah. So, you know, we're look, Jack and Kate 
our fate. Mm-hmm. Right. And I also think that it's worth listening to that because you, you, uh, contrast that with the ending of the episode. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that, uh, that puts you in a place. I think that that really gets you, uh, like it, these are bookends in many ways. Like it helps you like get through a lot of the heartbreak that Evangeline Lilly is a, a key figure in at the end of the episode. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's interesting that we actually ended up playing the last clip first of, you know, where it's almost a flashback in that regard of this is where they're going to get to where she is like tearfully, you know, rebuffing him. And here he is just in both cases, though, he is letting his heart be exposed. And in one case, Kate is just not necessarily responding to it, saying, let's unpack that later on. In the other case, she is refusing because he has broken her heart one too many times. And I think it's very interesting endpoints, as you say, as to what's going to ensue with these two characters, particularly over the next three seasons. When Because really, it's going to become much more about Jate than Skate. Season three was a very Skate-heavy season, but we are transitioning over to Jate for the latter part of the series. All right, well, let's then go to Suliet. Or is it Joyer? How did people ever Joyer with a little bit of Hurley? He's like the mustard in the sandwich. Right, let's let's get a Sawyer and Juliet scene in the books. I love this one. Let's listen in on uh, sound number five. So when you pull us out of those polar bear cages and put us on the Chang Gang, what the hell did you have us breaking all those rocks for anyway? We're building a runway. Runway for what? The aliens. I don't know what for. Do you think they told me everything? Yeah, yeah, whatever you say. So you screwing Jack yet? No. Are you? How far away are these guns? There are any guns. What? I lied. You lied. It was the only way he let us go back. Why are you going back? Karma. Why are you going back, James? Hey! Hey, guys, wait up! The hell do you want? I'm coming with you guys. Uh Uh-uh. No way, not a chance. Come on, I can help. They're my friends too, man. Charlie would let me go with him and... Jack's too busy leading to even talk to me. I just want to help, please. For God's sakes, Hugo, look at you. You're just going to get in the way. You want to get us killed? So unfortunately, Josh, if we had MVP points to spare in this episode, I might throw one onto Juliet because she got a couple of trademark Burke Burns in on Sawyer in the middle of this episode. Yeah, uh, she I love the for the aliens. Uh, yeah, I mean I that, that's another fun little pot yeah. shot at the fans too, right? You know, I think uh, Juliet's hysterical. Uh, she's just got like some zingers in there, and just like some like just like she's so surprising. Like when she said, uh, "How's your shoulder? Awesome." You know, like Juliet's yeah. just like got some surprises up her sleeve. She's a ris- she's a mystery wrapped up in an enigma, and of course, like the whole "you screwing Jack yet?" No, are you? Is like a fun little pot shot back at him. But I mean, I want to include both of those clips in there because 
it's it's two separate scenes though almost right it's the juliet and sawyer stuff which is definitely a small breadcrumb setting up what's to come especially in season five but then we get poor hurley for the second time in the course of 24 hours being driven away from being able to go on a mission because they said you're essentially you're too big you'll get in the way and i but i think that what sawyer's doing here is exactly what charlie did right yeah it's it's harry and the hendersons you know and i think that like it's it's sawyer once again like channeling what Hurley had told him a few episodes ago of uh, like people are looking at you to be a leader and he's making a call. He wants to throw the rock at him to get him away. He doesn't want, he knows that this is dangerous. He doesn't want him to get hurt. He loves Hugo. Everybody does. Uh, so I think it's more that than the him being mean thing. And frankly, yeah. I feel like uh, Charlie's version was meaner. Uh, yeah. Charlie's version was, was specifically like, Oh, you're too heavy. You'll make us sink. Sawyer's was just like, Oh, you know, I don't, I don't want you to slow us down like i'm doing it for your sake not necessarily for mine yeah um but hurley's whole story like hurley is barely in this finale but the ways in which he is in the finale are just sublime <laughs> yeah i mean almost like a lockean sense too right where like a little bit goes a long way where these two characters don't have a lot to do in this episode but when they do you remember it yeah well let's let's get to lock uh just a quick second first there's there's ben and alex they're walking and it's just like ben like griping ah, i didn't want carl to get you pregnant i suppose i overreacted uh so there's that uh and now it's like why don't you just let these people go it's like, because, I, because i can't man, i can't because they're gonna kill me <laughs> maybe you should let them go uh but if he lets them go then they go and they go oh there's the secret island they'll never believe what, and like the, the 815 people start showing back up in the real world when everyone thinks they're dead questions will be asked it's complicated i get it no like, i don't no i don't think it's that at all josh i think it's very simple as the people that they're talking to are going to come kill me i think yeah. it's as very simple as that yeah 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 probably true um all right john locke in in one of two scenes, even if his ghost hangs heavy over the proceedings, John Locke uh, is uh, is is going to be dead in a ditch. Yeah, uh, or so dying we, in a ditch. We open on an eye because, of course, we do. It seems like do Locke's legs. What do we think the island took his legs away again? Is it because just the gunshot has like left him a bit paralyzed? Because he has and to like man's been shot in the chest. Yeah, so he has to manually move his legs. He's on the pile of bodies, and he notices a gun in the holster of one of the uh, long-dead Dharma people. And this is, you know, again, if we're comparing Jack and Locke, Locke is in an extremely similar position to Jack right now, where Locke is like, this is the end. I got betrayed. The island betrayed me. I need to end it all. And just when he is at his lowest moment as well, he gets his own savior, but not in the form of a car crash, but in the form of a familiar familiar child, another child ends up saving Locke's life here in many ways. Don't, John. I think I do. Now get up, John. He shot me and I can't move my legs. You can move your legs. Now get out of the ditch, John. Why? Because you have work to do. I love this so much. Our ghost wall! 
it's goes well, but Josh, what really makes this is after you've the you've got work to do line, the smile that creeps across Terry O'Quinn's face is magical. Like, because sweet, I'm not done. Great. Yeah, because this is Locke again. He's at his low point. He almost killed himself. And there's this, they did this really fantastic build where like Locke slowly turns the gun towards him. It's gonna be very evocative for the life and death of Jeremy Bentham. Another time where Locke will very like slowly and emotionally very evocative of jack nearly doing it earlier in the episode like trying to kill himself you could hear Locke maybe say mentally like forgive me and then a familiar face pops up here we have to assume this is the island taking the form of walt correct um i don't know that you have to assume that um i think that there's there's uh room for interpretation on this one because i think that the walt thing is so ill-defined that it's it's hard to know exactly what's going on. Is this the island slash Jacob? Is this Smokey McSmokerton? Um, is this the good side of the force? Is this the dark side of the force? I think that you could I think you could bat it back and forth um, because certainly like um, Locke is actively being punked by the monster, right? Like that is what the monster is trying to do to Locke. So like, is there a way to fit the taller ghost Walt stuff? into uh the monsters long con of punking john Locke into getting off the island getting killed coming back and wearing his face so as to defeat all the candidates or is this john Locke has this special communion with the island and the island is responding to him in the form of walt and if so why is it walt himself is he able to just like throw himself like astral project well, onto I know, the we, we, we talked about that in season two we have theorized that maybe he was able to do so so when he was talking to shannon uh you know that that's what he was doing i personally like the island idea because i think it links really nicely with jacob's help me to lock during uh the man behind the curtain in the cabin of like i see this guy i want him to help me so i'm going to encourage him to get up out of that ditch i do like the idea all the read that is maybe more malevolent in that the man in black wants to continue to use him as a stooge but i do feel like it just resounds really nicely with the man behind the curtain specifically that this is them being like oh wait john Locke can hear me all right, great. Well, let's get him out of that hole because is that where we landed with that. I thought where we landed with the man behind the curtain is that that was all smoke monster. I don't think we said that. Um, it's definitely my feeling on it. So if I if I didn't say that, then I then I misrepresented it. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I think that everything that's going on with the cabin is all smoky McSmokerton. Um, so I I don't know. I I feel. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I guess, now that I'm thinking about it, yeah, I guess. I guess that was the case. I'm trying to remember. Now I can't remember from three weeks back what we said. That's going to happen on a show where time travel's involved and those oh, no, bleeding my nose help. occurs. Yes, yes. You need to clean. Uh, you've got some arse on you. Uh, you know, that that's going to happen. But I mean, I think that the, the Jacob's Cabin thing was all smoke show. Like, I think the whole thing yeah, was smoke. Yeah, you know what? Now I think, yeah, because remember, I come up with the, the idea that Locke accidentally broke the ash circle. So yeah, maybe to that point, maybe this is Smokey being like, oh, great Locke thinks he's communicating with the island okay well let me roll let with me this give him like here. a familiar figure that's gonna make him feel good and so like then you get into the, the the space of like well how does he conjure up Walt is it because like he can like pull you know you know turn himself into into dreams and memories which I think we've talked about yeah, before I, I, I think we've officially canonized that right that he can like scan your mind uh, much like a taxi scanner and is like yeah I can uh, pull these people out of your memories it's not my favorite I don't love it uh I, I think like you can you can you can view it that way if it works for you i think and, and no harm no foul it's it's typically not how i like to go um uh 
but I, I don't know that I've got a much better one. I mean, like it could be time travel. It could be time traveling uh, Dave marrying Libby territory, Mike, where uh, a Walt of the future that we know that Ben and Hurley are going to bring back to the island to communicate with his father. We've got work for you, Walt, that they're going to bring Walt back to the island. And Walt is at some point going to accidentally travel back in time and be on the island at a time where his, uh, you know, he lives his life out happily ever after in a long ago age on the island. And now his bones are there. And so the smoke monster can use his likeness because technically Walt is dead somewhere on the island because of time travel. Oh, I thought you were going to say that he accidentally traveled back in time to talk to Locke, and because he traveled through time, his voice automatically got pitched yeah, up. I mean, That's why he sounds young, it, right? Because he's now like you know, because like Walt w- would have gone back in time. So essentially, um, Walt pulls in John Locke, and it's like, hey, Locke, just so you know, like you got to do this because I don't come onto the island if that doesn't happen, and it creates a paradox, you know. And like he grow, he grows up, and he gets to be mature. Oh, and, and he stuff. grows up, he grows up he and up grows, and up, and then and then he and then he, you know, he trips back through time. He lives out his life there. He dies. Let's say he dies peacefully on the island at some point in time. And I the think, monster you know can I think- take on his likeness, but he's like kind of confused on like, so should I should I be him as a kid? Do I get the? Do I have the voice right? Yeah. Uh, so he's like, well, oh, I've never, I've never done a child before. Yeah, like, I haven't done uh, a child, child yet. Yeah, uh, I haven't, I, I haven't I always, a kid yet. By the way, I always like to think that Walt dies alongside Vincent. I think they die together. Yeah, so they go, they go back in time, Mike. Uh, and that's uh, that's what's gonna. And you know that uh, that the man in black. Uh, loves Vincent the dog. We'll get to that in the missing mm-hmm. pieces, you know. So he's maybe he's got a thing for like he he loves the whole Walt and Vincent dynamic. He knows it a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, look, unlike the real McCoy, uh, I do not go through puberty, so I can be young Walt all you want. I remember being in an episode that is full of surprises. This was a big one for me. I remember at the time because I don't believe they they credited Malcolm David Kelly in this episode. So that was a huge yeah, surprise. That that the, the adage was, oh, they got rid of Michael and Walt on the show because Malcolm David Kelly was growing up so fast to so bring him back. Fast. And they tried like, you know, the reverse Lord of the Rings where they shot it from below to not make it realize how tall he had grown up to be. And it looked like they did pitch his voice up a little bit in post. But I just, I love whoever he is. I love the appearance of Walt here because it, it, it reverberates for so many reasons to, to lock that like what, how he was able to inspire somebody on, on the Island in the past. He is now being inspired by what appears to be that same person now. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. I think, uh, I think it's, I, I like it. I'm sending it to Samoa time traveling, dead Walt time traveling, taller ghost. Walt is the smoke monster confirmed. I confirmed with a question mark. <laughs> Confirmed yeah. dead. <laughs> um, all right, let's take a quick break here. A lot, that's the end of the first part of Through the Looking Glass. We'll take a quick break here, recalibrate. We'll be right back with part two, Mike. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right. And we are back. And Mike, we are back to the future. And it's Nirvana. But it's a trick. This is a new Nirvana song. This is a Nirvana song that was released uh, after the crash of Oceanic. It's a clue, Mike. It's a clue. Yeah, th- those really big grunge fans, they were on to it an hour ahead of everybody else. It was uh, that. I think it's Jack's phone is of a certain yeah, time. Jack's, well. I mean, it's interesting because when Jack makes the call to Kate, I'm assuming he uses the same phone. We did not. The Motorola Razor aspect of it was definitely obscured. Yeah. But otherwise, you're like, Jack's using a flip phone? What the yeah. hell is going on here? Yeah, he's using a flippity phone. Uh, that, that dastardly Jack. Uh, if that's not enough of a clue for you, here he is at... Hoff's Drawler Funeral Parlor. That's Hoff's Drawler Funeral Parlor. Hmm. What is if you mix the Hoff's Drawler? It says flash forward. Oh my God. Exactly. And unfortunately, you know, I I do wonder if uh, if people. It's it's fantastic. I do wonder if there was an. I love it. There's an anagram uh, machine accessible on the internet at that time, you know, when people have figured it out ahead of time, or are they just well, I'm sure there that, like a- I'm sure that there are people who are watching the episode as they're going, and they see that, and they're like the type of lost man that's like deciphering literally everything as they go, uh, and they're like, all right, well, that's got to be something, because the, <laughs> the shot like lingers on Hoff's jaw. <laughs> they're like, all right, I guess we know who, I don't know who Hoff's or Drawler is. It's probably on the Hoff's drawler sign for like two seconds too long. Like it definitely feels like it's lingering. So I can imagine people being like, all right, that's got to be a thing. And then if they just like do it there in the moment, they're like, oh shit. <laughs> well, I don't know though, because they could have looked, they could get a flash forward. They could also get a uh, dwarf flash or they could get hard flaws for, mm-hmm. they can get a uh, lad wharfs fro. Or they can get uh, Drawl Fafrosh, of course, that infamous saying. Uh, yes. Or they can get half our sword. So maybe they think like, oh, Jack's going to get his sword. It's only half a sword, but he's going to get one right now. Half our sword? Half far sword. Half far sword. So far sword is the sword, and he's only going to get half of it. Just the Or wharf far far sold that's mm. like oh jack's gonna go buy the wharf that's yeah. his next major mission yeah and that's far and he's gonna sell some stuff yeah exactly oh that's far in the future don't worry but jack you gotta you gotta sell some stuff if you want to buy that sweet sweet wharf you no know, mike they figure it out while they're watching the episode and it's flash for and they're like oh no oh my goodness and that must be a fun way to experience this as well you know yeah. so like that's fun i think that's great i love that that's baked in here and of course on the replay it's super super fun jack goes inside but Jack goes forward. inside again, showing his despite not going through with the act of jumping off the bridge, no regard for his life whatsoever. He is just walking straight up in the middle of traffic, which again shows that despite Jack living, is he really right now? Yeah. Does he feel like he's living because he's almost in a daze right now? He needs Kate to splash water on him and wake him up a la Sawyer. Yes, uh, that's a, a la Sawyer sounds like a way to prepare a meal. 
uh, shrimp a la Sawyer is getting shrimp from a guy and then leaving and the shrimp gets cold and then you kill the guy. Yeah, uh, Oreos a la Sawyer is you take half of it and throw it away. In yeah, the sand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, beer a la Sawyer uh, is you drink skunked beer in the middle of the jungle uh, or on a beach after you've killed some people. Yeah, exactly. Or a little bit, a little bit of both as a, yeah. like a sort of a celebration. So, you know, we just left a scene in which John Locke is dying in a ditch only to get to. And, you know, it's funny because uh, this is we, we say there's only two John Locke scenes in this episode. Uh, this is a John Locke scene. John Locke in that casket. Yeah. I mean, we'll officially see his face a season from now. But, yeah, he is in that casket. Jack has shown up to a funeral where nobody has attended. And it speaks to both. John Locke's life, you know, even outside of like the Jeremy Bentham stuff, John Locke was somebody who especially came to the island without many friends or family. And that really hits Jack as well. Even though he he does not admit at this moment that he is his friend, I think to your point, this still reminds Jack of like the isolation that not only Locke feels, but now Jack feels subsequently of what is this man's death and his isolation in doing so, what does that mean to me? Yeah. Uh, so it's a big moment for him to, to be here and to be alone. And uh, he can't keep numbing the pain. You know, there's only one, one pill left and he's going to take it. Now the rest of, uh, you know, much of the rest of this future Jack story is going to be like, how do I get more pills? I need <laughs> exactly. these pills. Oh, damn it. Why did I take that pill? Now yeah. I need those pills. I need them. Um, back in the jungle. Uh, it's Jack. With Danielle, they're walking. Uh, they're about an hour away from the tower. Danielle hasn't been there since the day she recorded the message. It's a long time to not even go and check and make sure it's still going. Uh, she's like, yeah, I don't think anyone else would run into it. I'm good. Plus, it's been 16 years. I've got bunkers to build. But, you know, Rousseau offers a very interesting perspective here. She refuses to leave the island, telling Jack, you know, there's no place for me back there. This is my home now. You spoke about how that was very much a Sawyer attitude in the first couple seasons. Yeah. But I think also very nicely foreshadows the schism that develops between the survivors next season of, you know, staying here versus the idea of rescue. And it's also great in that Danielle says like, Oh, there's nothing out there for me leads immediately into them stumbling into Ben and Alex. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, I, I, I guess that also kind of clarifies why, by the way, uh, she wouldn't go back to the radio tower at a certain point. She's like, I'm not leaving. I'm, yeah. I'm stick. I'm stick. Yeah. I can imagine after a certain point, like you lose all hope of escape and you start to gain that mentality of like, my crew got killed. Montan lost a freaking arm. I lost my child. What is there to go back for? The world has passed me by. This is where I live now. This is my home now. And, you know, it's it's really interesting. We've talked about the parallel paths of Claire becoming the new Rousseau. But I think where a big point where their paths diverge is that Claire ultimately will make the choice to leave the island. Right. And that's because there is someone at home waiting for her. So while Claire does become a bit of the, the squirrel mama that she will later on starting next season, she ultimately does not end up like Danielle Rousseau did. She does not die on the Island because she decides to go be with her child in a different regard. Yeah. Do we call that, is that officially Cluso when Claire goes full yeah, well, Rousseau? Cluso or Nuso? Yeah. Cluso, Inspector Cluso. Um, all right. In the station. Uh, yeah. We leave with the, the Ben t- uh, showdown it's going to develop very soon. We'll, we'll get back to it. Uh, back the looking glass. I can the looking glass. Mikhail does not use a towel. He is still sopping wet as he is figuring out all this equipment. Yeah, and he puts his eye patch back on, which is how you know he's ready to go to work. Uh, and he like it's just like asking uh, Bonnie and Greta all this stuff. He's like, "Hey, 
why? It's like, who, who knows how to do all this stuff? Who's got the code? Let's just like table set this again for the audience in case they missed that earlier in the episode. Uh, yeah. And then, then actually in a deleted scene, Naomi pops up in the middle of the looking glass station to explain how the phone works just in case anything <laughs> happens to her. Yeah. And how does the phone work too? Uh, and he's like, why are you following Ben's orders without questioning them? She said, Bonnie says, I trust Ben. I trust Jacob. And the minute I question orders, all of this is going to fall apart. And I was like, goes, Dang, you're you. right. Appreciate Dang. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's what I need. And so, uh, much as he, he killed another earlier this season, uh, albeit with the others full blessing uh, in his clue, uh, Mikhail against their consent, Mike shall start shooting Greta and Bonnie. So why do you think, because Ben gave him two parts of the plan, right? Kill Charlie, and I guess you should kill Greta and Bonnie too. Why do you think he goes through with the second part of the plan first? Um, Instead of killing Charlie first? Yeah. Because Charlie's tied up. He's a future problem. Uh, he has to get the drop on Greta and Bonnie uh, because mm-hmm. they are potentially armed and dangerous. And if he just like shoots Charlie without telling them. But the whole way he does all of this is very bad. And once again, representative of the fact that like Mikhail is fully his own person and he's a dumb idiot. Uh, <laughs> he shoots Greta and then Bonnie has enough time to like run away from him. And then yeah. he, he pursues her and like shoots her in like, I always thought he shot her in the leg, but she dies from this. So maybe no, I, I'm pretty sure he shoots her in the chest or the back. In the I'm back. To yeah, it seems. Uh, but like, he's got all of this time and uh, he's, he's like, even has enough time to like monologue above her. I'm sorry. I too am following orders. And then Desmond shows up with a spear gun. Uh, and, and whacks him in the chest. With Which the is weird because again, you'd be like, oh, this surprises Mikhail. But Mikhail knows that Desmond's here. Mikhail yeah. says, oh, yeah, his buddy is here, too. He, he should have expected that Desmond was going to pop out. Mikhail sucks, way. man. That's the thing. Mikhail's bad. He's terrible at all of this. Uh, Mikhail is just no good. Yeah, you know what it is? Mikhail wanted to have his badass, like, Agent 47 moment, right? Of, like, all right, this is when I do my cool action line. And he just got completely distracted and, for lack of a better term, blinded by the idea that, oh, yeah, there's someone else here, and I very much have left myself vulnerable. He did a bad job here. He should have been like, all right, as you were, and then he walks and he's got Bonnie and Greta and he's like behind them and he just blap blap and then blaps Charlie as well and it's done you know like this this whole thing could have been done a lot easier but he had to like make a real show of it and as a result he he caught him monologuing and so caught he monologuing. gets the harpoon through the chest now it's not like a straight up harpoon this is not like Daniel Russo's crossbow through Benjamin line it's, it's like a little mini thing it's enough to like make you think he's dead but he's not Exactly. He's like, all right, I guess I have to pass out again. But these luckily, these people don't know what they're doing. That's the one thing Mikhail is like next level at. That's the thing. It's like he is next level at playing dead. Yeah, maybe it's just like he goes invisible to 815. Uh Oh, I guess he's dead. He's lying down. I suppose he dies for eight hours every night in that regard. Uh, You can't even see me. That's how slow I'm moving. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Really, it's like Drax. He takes things too literally. He thinks he's invisible. Yeah, Mikhail the Destroyer. Uh, What is Gamora? Yeah, back with Jack. Uh, So Jack and Kate, uh, they just like go into action again, like old times, wordlessly. She does the scouting. He just moves on against Ben. Ben a weak ass surrender stance like his arms he doesn't even attempt to put his hands up he just stands with like his limp wrists just yeah. being like oh I'm you can yeah, listen I've got nothing to hide here Jack but I won't put my arms up because my pits stink yeah I love Ben trying to talk to Naomi uh, hi Ben uh, I'm 
Benjamin. Yeah, I believe I we, think... haven't, we haven't been introduced. Yeah, because, uh, you know, he wants to talk to her. I'm sure he's he would love to talk her out of this, too. You know, he probably has, like, the Miles Strom deal, you know, that he's willing to make. Yeah, you know, Miles wants for $3.2 million. Maybe he'd be willing to give that to Naomi. And I love that Ben's trying to kill Jack here, being like, oh, but I want to talk, talk for five minutes. You did kill seven of my people. And Jack's like, uh, let's go to the tally sheet here and talk about, like, what you've inflicted on my people you versus what I've inflicted on yours. Yeah, you want to talk numbers? So he's going to go and he's going to accept the conversation. Uh, they're pretty confident that they're not surrounded, so he's going to have the conversation. We have a quick flash forward that I, I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on, on it, other than, like, I feel like this is a very evocative scene of Jack is at the pharmacy and he's trying to get his, his uh, prescription yeah. refund build and he's lying and he's very clearly disturbed and there's also people who recognize him because Jack's very famous at this point because he's I, I, and I love the guy being like I don't care what this guy did give him what he wants give yeah. him all the painkillers he needs yeah I mean like I think that he's like this guy's clearly both in distress and also do you have any idea what he's been through yeah uh, and, uh, Jack uh, unintentionally bodies a poor sunglasses stand on his yeah. way out Should we give an LVP to the sunglasses stand for dying I mean, I don't know if it dies. It goes out in a cool way, so I can't... Uh, it automatically got shades on, but Matthew Fox does a really interesting... I don't know. For some reason, him slapping the counter has always been a very evocative image for me. Of, well, like, he's just like... He's really committed to, like, demonstrating this character as, like, a, a like a destroyed edge of his... Like, total end of his rope. Edge of the cliff, as it were. Uh, and he doesn't even have John Locke to pull him up right now. Yeah, uh, well, but I also think that Jack is not a character who gets very physical. I think Jack is a character who will sort of cautiously observe things. And then when he's really pushed to do so, he'll, you know, tackle John Locke at the Boone roll when he thinks that he's directly responsible for Boone's death. Like that's when he'll take action. And I do think that just shows to your point, how emotionally taught Jack is of like, he is taking out his anger, which is something that we don't necessarily, we see Jack yell, but I think, I think we very rarely see him like physicalize his aggression. Yeah. Uh, so he's, uh, he's just like out of sorts. He can't even stand on his own two feet. So it's, it's just like really reinforcing how bad off Jack is at this point in his life. All right. So let's get to the reason that the Benjamin Linus beatdown counter was created. Uh, let's, let's get to it. I, I expect we're going to be strapping in for a long sound here, Mike. Yeah, it's, we're looking at about four and a half minutes here. So grab a snack. As Ben will say, take a seat. Have a seat. Not so long ago, Jack, I made a decision that took the lives of over 40 people in a single day. I'm telling you this because history is about to repeat itself right here, right now. Let me guess, you've, you've got us surrounded and if I don't do what you say, you're going you're gonna to kill all my people. No, Jack, you are. <laughs> and how am I going to do that, then? The woman you're traveling with, the one who parachuted onto the island from a helicopter, she's not who she says she is. She's not, huh? No, she's not. And who is she? She's a representative of some people who have been trying to find this island, Jack. She's one of the bad guys. Oh, I almost forgot. You're the, you're the good guys. Jack, listen to me. If you phone her boat, every single living person on this island will be killed. 
So here's what has to happen. Get that device. The phone she carries with her. And give it to me. I will turn around. We'll go back to my people. You will turn around and go back to your people. I'm not going anywhere. I have my walkie back. What? There's something you need to hear. Please. Thank you. Tom, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Your plan killed seven of my people. But the ones that you failed to kill are now holding your friends. Jin, Saeed, Bernard. At gunpoint. Chuck, don't give him any And what's to stop me from snapping your neck? Tom, unless you hear my voice in one minute, shoot all three of them. Bring me the phone, Jack. Forty seconds. I'm getting them all off the island. All of them. Let me ask you something, Jack. Why do you want to leave the island? What is it that you so desperately want to get back to? You have no one. Your father's dead. Your wife left you. Moved on with another man. Can you just not wait to get back to the hospital? Get back to fixing things. It's 20 seconds now. Just get me the phone, Jack. No. Ten seconds. Bring me the phone. No. I'm not bluffing. I won't Five, do it! Four, three. No. I'm so sorry, Jack. Tom, you there? Yeah, Jack, I hear you. I'm going to leave my people up to the radio tower. And I'm going to make a call. And I'm going to get them all rescued. Every one of them. And then I'm going to come find you. And I'm going to kill you. Jack Shepard, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, nine times is how many times he punched Ben Linus in the face. Nine times. Every time Benjamin Linus said, nine, nine, stop doing that. I like the ninth one because you think like it stops at eight and it's like, nah, <laughs> one love, for good luck. <laughs> I mean, the Jaquino score is so good in this scene in particular, but yeah, especially because it gets punctuated on the last beat. Is it safe to say, Josh, this is the most tense scene in the episode? Um... Yeah, I think so. I, I think particularly the way that the score comes in and the cinematography, it's particularly Jack with Locke at the end, and I would vote this. 
Because I, I, I think there's the this, particularly the section when Ben is doing the countdown because the cinematography, it keeps flashing as every second passes between like Jack, Ben and the walkie talkie to really amp up like this is actually going to happen. And at the moment, we think it did. Right. We hear three gunshots. Matthew Fox, incredible performance, incredible reaction of him yeah. just looking pained there's a few there's a few really next level matthew fox moments here one is when ben goes can i have my walkie back and jack just goes what uh, like there's like sort of like this like uh fog of war quality to jack even oh, here on the island yeah of like like well he's in a little bit of a daze here like he doesn't yeah. know exactly what's happening ben has invited him into his office i love i just love the line have a seat because it's sh- it represents really how ben feels about the island right now which is that he's the boss yes the world is my office right now jack so so have a seat and let me give you my pitch about how you know i only killed 40 people but you can save a bunch more if you decide not to make this call here and i i don't know this it's just you know going back again to that to that gunshot moment Matthew Fox immediately starts crying because he knows like, Oh my God, these three people are dead. dead. But but then Jack like immediately, not like immediately recovers from it, but goes into action mode, right? He's like, yes, these three people are dead, but I'm going to make sure they do not die in vain. Yeah. Uh, I also love when he tells Tom, then I'm going to come find you and I'm going to kill you. I've, I've, I've talked before about how, how I love when Matthew Fox has, has yeah instead yeah. of you. I don't think you've ever said that on the podcast. Yeah, but I, you, you listen for it because it happens a lot. Where is it? Tom, you there? Uh, it's just great. It's just a great Matthew Fox quirk because he loves uh, yeah instead of you. He does it a lot. You'll, yeah, and, you'll then, and then Tom responds like, well, what about throwing the football? Yeah, I love that. He's like, wait, what? You're going to kill me? I thought we were friends. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's really interesting to watch. I mean, after he hears them get shot, he shoots his shot, right? Of just like in response, nine beating, closed fist punches yeah, beating, to the face, beating the snot out of Ben. Definitively, the number one beatdown we've experienced so far because it is close. it's well because it's also so cathartic. Yes, too. Right? We watched an entire season of this guy be the leader of the others. When he got shot through the chest with the with the with the arrow, we didn't know who this guy was. We didn't know him from Adam. We could have assumed he was poor old Henry Gale. In this case, we know how just incredibly duplicitous and malevolent this one man can be. And to have Jock just Jack just beat the it's snot great. out of him is just glorious. And then he follows it up by taking the walkie-talkies like, yeah, you know what? I just kicked the shit out of your leader and I'm coming for you next. I'm going to make a call. Yeah, I love it. The whole thing is great. Yeah, so that's number one on the Benjamin Linus beatdown counter. Yeah. Never, well, also, never quite I, gets top. And I love, you know, uh, I mean, Ben does have a couple of posturing moments here, right? Like Jack's like, what is it? What stops me right now from killing you? And Ben quickly pivots by being like, oh, uh, yeah. And by the way, uh, Tom, if you don't hear me in 40 seconds, kill them right now. Right, 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 uh, right, right. And Ben really making a dig at that Jack file, right? Of what's what's waiting back for you. That seems to be, I think, the big question of this episode. What's waiting for you? What's something nice back home to use a future episode title? And I think Ben is really picking at where Jack finds himself in both the flashback and the flash forward of almost being out on his own Island where he does have family and friends, but to what extent I think Ben was probably doing it to the extent of like convincing, beating down Jack to have him, you know, supplement to his side. 
but it actually just more invigorates Jack to just completely, you know, lay the beat down on Ben of like, yeah, I'm going to add insult to injury here. Yeah. Uh, I feel like um, this, this moment where he says, what do you have to go back for? Basically it's, it's really, it's really intelligent because it, it works on a few levels. It works on the level of like, if you think, the episode is a flashback, right? And it's like, it's very, it's, it's, it's intersecting with, um, the, the episode as it like would standardly proceed, right? Of like, you don't know, uh, what, you know, what future awaits Jack. Do you think that this is just like another sad, tragic, dark moment from his past? And it's like, yeah, why are you fighting so hard to go back to that? So it works on that level, but then it, it works more on the level of like, uh, like leaving here is going to be a very bad choice ultimately. Yeah. But even this also, I think, helps to underline one of the things that's so successful about the flash forward story in this episode beyond being a gimmick. What makes it more than just a gimmick is it's a very powerful story. It's a really powerful meditation on all of the pain that Jack has been through is continuing to, to wade through that Jack is at his low. He's, he's obviously processing the Island stuff, but the things that the show gives you up front are like Sarah and the memory of his father and exactly. things like that. Like it, it, this is just a culmination of yes. pain. just throw the Island on top of so it. It has like all of that interplayed. Uh, and so I think that that line from Ben uh, definitely helps move that ball forward. So the whole scene is awesome. One of the best of the episode uh you know one of my favorite things to say is it's the best of the episode it's, it's high well, up there and i think it's also i mean it's very meaningful as well we really haven't seen jack and ben really interact much really since what like the days of stranger in a strange land when he saves juliet from being executed right. uh so we really haven't had to sit down with the two leaders for basically half the season at this point. And when it's done, it is done fantastically. And I think this whole theme is 815 sort of taking back the island from the others. And they were able to do so in multiple ways between the dynamite in the beginning of the, in the first hour. And now with this beat down in the second hour of Ben trying his schmooziness on Jack, but Jack is not having it whatsoever. And this is what's going to lead to, you know, Ben being captured by 815 for the time being. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So back at the looking glass, Greta's dead. Bonnie's yeah, the, the, dying. The first, the first shot is just Greta's lifeless body She's floating dead. in the water. Who cares? Greta's gone. Bonnie's on the way out. Uh, Charlie's able to convince her, like, tell me the code. Ben got you killed. If you tell me the code, he's going to be very mad. Why wouldn't you do that? She's like, that is a very good point. Yeah, uh, Charlie, again, like, able to, I think, uh, in, infect others with his sense of recklessness of like, listen, we're all going to die anyway. Some of us more immediate than others. So why not just like let out the deathbed confessionals right now? Give me the numbers. Well, you know what? Just give me a song that matches up with it. Yeah, good vibrations. I, in, an, in a different timeline, in an alternate version of Lost, Josh, Charlie survives this, goes back in time in season five, and has to be the one to build the Looking Glass station and program it with good vibrations. Yeah, for sure. Um, but the fact that, like, the code is a song. It's yeah. good vibrations, and so he's going to be able to just, like, play it out. He doesn't even need to remember the numbers. Um, this is this is destiny. Yeah. He's supposed to do this, damn well, it. His whole life is built towards this moment. Especially the fact that the keyboard and those semitonals represent a piano. And what's the first thing that Charlie ever got that, you know, really represents his core competency as a musician is a piano. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that's great. Uh, that's really, really, really great. I just I love the way in which that plays. Yeah. Uh, I think that only hammers home to Charlie. Like, yeah, this is this is the place. 
you yeah. know, this is destiny. Even though he's going to say so much for fate later on, like this is fate that of all people, the musician is the one to be able to unjam the signal. Uh, all right. So back with Jackie drops off Ben in front of everyone. <laughs> Tie him up. Uh, and this is the moment. The Rousseau's are back together. Uh, uh, Daniel, Alex is going to go to Ben. Daniel walks forward. Alex, this is your mother. Uh, and this is, it's so small, but I love that it's so small. Yes. Right. Cause like you can imagine another aspect. It would be like the camera swirls around and they're soaring music, but this is all of like a 15, 20 second scene. I would say, and that's, that is totally fine with me. I love that Mira Furland does such a great job and that like, she doesn't even just say anything. She just is touching Alex, which she hasn't been able to do in a decade plus that she never thought she'd be able to do. Like, it's just, it's beauty in just the physical performance that I don't think we needed any dialogue. And the fact that the only dialogue we get is, would you like to help me tie him up is pitch perfect. Yeah, um, it's uh, I love the way that like she kind of like traces Alex's face and it's just like kind of like, you know, with like literal like physical sense, like um, catching up on all of this lost time. Exactly. Uh, and that's that's the and I don't know whose choice that was, but I think it was great because that's also Rousseau, right? Rousseau is not necessarily a wordsmith. She is someone who is much more about like woman of the sense, the sense yeah. of things. And I, I also think with like I love the fact that Alex you know, doesn't really know how to regard her at this moment either, because, you know, we haven't really seen much of Alex's side of the story. We obviously know the pain and heartbreak that Danielle felt in losing Alex, but we're not sure what Alex, you know, may or may not know. Well, she obviously didn't know a lot about her mother, but like how she feels about seeing her mother. And so I do think that Tanya Raymond does a good job of like playing the emotion without having to immediately go into like, Oh, and they hug and embrace right. and everyone applauds. Cause that's not how these two characters would interact necessarily. No, no not necessarily. So, uh, Jack and Kate, Together again, uh, patching him up. His knuckles are raw. Uh, he confesses what happened, that that the trio is dead, but we got to keep moving and we can't tell Rose and son. And Kate's yeah. like, if that's true, why didn't you just murder him? And Jack's like, believe me, I tried. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, 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 I thought he was dead. Uh, it's, it's kind like of incredible that he's alive. I do. I do think it's an interesting <laughs> philosophy shift, though, here that... Jack is really taking Saeed's words, not only with moving on, but him saying that the death of the shooters, quote, had to happen. And I think that's very different from Jack, you know, even back in season one, this is a guy who, through the deaths of people like Boone or the other things that he's witnessed, I think has slowly learned to let things go, not completely, obviously, but I do think the line that he has here about how, you know, these were just, you know, uh, pieces we had to be able to accomplish to get our end goal. It, it just feels distinctly different from Jack from season one in a good way. It shows yeah. that Jack is sort of maturing from the experiences around him. Yeah. And so he also says, uh, I'm keeping him alive because I want him to be there when we get off the island so he knows he failed and then I'm going to kill him. And then, and then I'm like, dude, you're going to get arrested. You know, at the point that you're getting rescued and you've got all these witnesses of you just like murdering someone in cold blood, I think you're going to jail, man. I don't know. I think he'd still be the hero. He might be the hero, but he might go to jail. There's so many witnesses. And like, I don't know if all the freighter people, you know, this is in the theoretical world in which the freighter people are on the level. They're on the up and up. Uh, they're not going to be thrilled. You've just killed a man. 
I don't know. Could could Jack say it was out of self defense? Could he be able no, to figure he that just out? Somehow? Murdered him in cold blood. He says, "I'm going to kill him." I, I don't think so. I don't know that he's got that. <laughs> I don't think that works. But whatever, it doesn't happen. But I always thought that was funny. Um, back at the beach, this, this stupid line: "We should have killed them for real." Yeah. Uh, so let's let's talk about this. It's first. cute. It's cute. Not hot. It's fine. I mean, well, but what was Ben's plan here? Like, was he planning to? fake kill them and like use them as as leverage i'm not sure why ben kept them alive you know because you could kill them twice you know you could you can pretend to kill them now and then it doesn't work and then uh you could have them like be rounded up and killed later in front of people so that like there's no longer any equivocation about it i guess but it's still like i think it's too cute by half i believe very much so he was trying to have his cake and eat it too yeah uh, but but I do love because I don't know Josh when I was watching at the time there was certainly a part of me that's like holy crap these three are dead I mean you, you would wonder if two big characters and one supporting character you know them dying off screen would be a pretty criminal and crazy way of, of doing it but Lost just killed seven others mm-hmm. in an instant you know it's going to kill Charlie soon it's not exactly outside the realm of possibility but I do love that panning shot right that cuts from friendly complaining and just revolves around to show that no these three guys aren't dead at all yeah uh but don't worry here's sawyer here's juliet they're ready to go they got like, no uh, gun oh okay we don't know what we're doing right. oh, we very yeah. much did to figure this out i completely regret this decision good thing uh they they didn't hop into the polar bear pit alone because hurley's with the dharma van uh. and hugo reyes for the second time in his life becomes a murderer. Yeah. Oh, and it's so, it's so freaking fun. It is so, this is he means it too. This <laughs> he didn't mean it before. Yeah. No, the, like the determination with which Hurley has on this face. And it, it's also a very mature point for Hurley too. Like you said that like, this is part of the reason this is like, again, the, the seeds are being planted for who Hurley becomes in the end of, you know, being a leader doesn't mean you have to murder people, but I think you have to do the hard things sometimes. And I think Hurley being able to kill someone to save the people that he cares about is a big deal, especially from a character like Hurley. I, I also love that the numbers theme is being used again, but in less of a comical sense than it was in that episode, like just such a freaking badass out of nowhere yet delightful moment from Harley. I love the freaking callback to the Dharma van because for all the people that complain like, oh, this episode is so out of place, it's unnecessary. Here it is. You know, Chekhov's van is driving in and RIP Ryan Price. Yeah, so Ryan just gets it. Eat shit, Ryan. Yeah, he <laughs> that guy. Slammed. And then uh, poor, you know, uh, poor other Jason is not long for this world either because Saeed sideswipes him and then breaks his neck with his legs. Um, full Jack Bauer style. My favorite Saeed kill of the series, I think. Uh, oh, I mean, a- yes, it's it's that's very easily it. And well, there's there's a few that are really really good, uh, and he's gonna you know, especially in season five when he's like in assassin mode with Hurley. I don't, I don't know. I feel like this is the most impressive though, right? This is the most like bare bones. Just needs two two legs, and he can accomplish it. And I also love it's so badass afterwards, where right after he does it, he just regards Sawyer with sort of like a sup. Yeah, what I just did, What's up, bro. Uh, and now we say goodbye to another friendly face, literally, Mister Friendly. Here we go. Stay right there, Tom. 
Okay. I give up. That's for taking the kid off the raft. Duty was over, you surrendered. I didn't believe her. Yeah, uh, Tom. Take, you can't take the brig out of Sawyer anytime Tom. soon. Tom. Tom. Yeah. Uh, Tom just got Karen'd. Uh Sawyer says goodbye to Mr. Friendly. That's for taking the kid off the raft. And I love that. That's a long time coming. But I also do wonder, Josh, if the events of the brig don't happen, does he still kill Tom? Um, it's a good question. Um, I, I do think for me, it's that Sawyer now I think has gotten a little bit of a taste of blood of like, okay, I can now sort of get revenge on these people. Obviously, Friendly is someone who he has had an axe to grind with for a while. We see that back in the hunting party as well. And I, I do wonder if Sawyer feels like because he was capable of doing this in the past, maybe he feels like this is like the only solution, you know, the yeah. only way up is down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I hate to see Tom friendly go like this. It always, it always bumped me out, but uh, you know, Sawyer has been promising this for a while. Well, that's the thing is that I agree that like, you know, it was really fun to see his character and it's weird to see him go like this. But I feel like the payoff when you look at it from season one, considering how he came all the way from, you know, being the one to essentially shoot Sawyer and kill all of 815's hopes and dreams at the end of season one. It's kind of fitting that he goes out this way at the at the boot of 815 begging for his life. It actually feels very appropriate to that arc overall. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And also, if we if we are moving into a new era, uh, why are we still playing these silly games when we all know it's moved to the next stage? So I think uh, to get rid of some of those like front half villains as yeah. we move into the back half makes sense to me. And also the fact that, you know, yes, we just lost seven others, but there are a bunch of no-named others. I do think that it's pretty significant that we killed one of the others we got to know over the course of this entire season. 100%. Absolutely. Um, all right, back to the future, Mike. Um, Jack is stealing Oxy, popping pills right on the spot, this poor, poor mess of a human. Which is interesting because, again, speaking towards the flash forward nature, evokes a bit of season one Sawyer, like sort of hoarding through supplies. He's in the wild, essentially. He feels yeah. like he's out of civilization right now, just sort of scrounging through things, getting what he wants. Yeah. Um, so Jack's going to get not quite caught red handed, but basically as your boy, Dr. Hamill, is going to show up. He's going to we got to talk about some stuff. Let's listen in. What are you doing, Dr. Shepard? I was just, uh, just checking the, uh, the Arlen charts. Just wanted to, wanted to see how the operation went. I left three messages on your voicemail. You didn't get them? My phone's broken. Let's go to my office, Jack. What? We need to have a talk. Come on. You know, I know that you're you're new around here. You don't know much about. I know enough. So let's just walk down to my. Oh, if you got something to say to me, you can say it to me. Right here. Will you excuse us, please? Mrs. Arlen, the woman you saved, woke up in recovery about two hours ago. 
She was in some pain, but highly responsive to the reflex test and entirely lucid. It's great. But then she described the series of events that caused her accident. She says she was driving over the bridge when she saw a man standing on top of the railing about to jump off. She was distracted and lost control of her car. She ran into the median, rolled over, and was hit by the van behind her. So the obvious question here, Jack, is how did you get to that flaming car so fast? What were you doing on that bridge? You know how many years I've worked at this hospital? Do you know anything about me? Do you have any idea what I've been through? How much have you had to drink today, Jack? Okay, I'll tell you what, you do this. You get my father down here. Get him down here right now. And if I'm drunker than he is, you can fire me. Don't you look at me like that. Don't you pity me. I'm trying to help you. You can't help me! This is just sad. It's so sad. It is so sad that Jack is resorting the, like, you know, once acclaimed spinal surgeon is now throwing a tantrum in the hallway of a hospital and yelling, despite the offer for help, you can't help me. It's like an affirmation to him, right? It's a confirmation of what he's believing this entire time, the self-destructive nature of you can't help me. No one can help me. You don't know what I've been through. I'm incapable of saving oh it's brutal it really is just awful um and then the the tactics with which he tries to are like so pitiful with you know like don't you basically says like don't you know who i am yeah like you you're not you haven't been here for long let me show you how it works and then so obviously the the big thing is him invoking christian's name yeah right is which is like why does he do that I don't know, Josh, have you ever had any ideas? Is that just like a, a drunken? I think it just goes to show how messed up he is. Yeah, that he just doesn't. He's traveling through time in a manner. Of speaking. Yeah, he's just so messed up. He's just so out of it. Uh, he's just like so deeply, tragically gone. Yeah, well, to the point where so Jack is, you know, stammering through his words, trying to come up with a lie like, oh, I was checking on Mrs. Arlen's charts. But then when Dr. Hamill's like, oh, yeah, Mrs. Arlen woke up, not an ounce of happiness on Jack's face. Yeah. You know, because I think he's realizing like, oh, yeah, the story is coming together. I've been cornered and it's just falling even further apart for Jack than he may think. And yeah, I think I think this is his lowest point point blank in the period. I know that again, him fighting his father during his father's AA meeting is pretty damn low, but like Jack getting accosted for stealing oxycodone and also like basically being called out for attempting to kill himself and causing a car accident is just, it's really bad. It's bleak. It's bleak. It's very, very, very bleak. And just like, again, just like, deeply deeply sad uh one of the saddest things uh on lost for me is this whole whole moment um back with the crew uh jack who has speaking of like the full opposite emotional yeah. this right 
Yeah, uh, he's, he's he's on cloud nine right now. He hasn't made the call yet, but he's like, I've got Ben. We're going to the radio tower. He's about to get a call that essentially confirms that his worst fear has been allayed. Yeah, so it's it's Hurley. He calls him. Everyone's fine. I saved him. I saved uh, them all. Oh, I love that line. Hurley's hysterical in this moment. Dude, I told you, I saved them all. I he, saved totally, them. He, he totally deserves it, too. He can be cocky. You know, he was the one who saved the day here. Yeah, he ran. He ran. Sawyer Ryan and Juliet over. did not have a plan. He had a plan. He slammed his van into Ryan. He saved them all. Uh, and he, you know, uh, we got him. Uh, I love all like the background details of all the people. There's like Jin and Bernard, like chilling on the ground. Sawyer's uh, drinking one of those skunked beers. Drinking a skunk beer. Uh, Claire asks over the radio about Charlie. He hasn't made it back yet. He's probably paddling home <laughs> as we speak. And there's also, even from the 815 perspective, there's a lot of great background stuff like Rose and Son hug. There's been a nice runner throughout of Rose and Son sort of being comrades in arms and that both of their husbands have agreed to this mission. And so yeah. they're, they keep one eye to the beach. And so to find this out just makes them happy beyond belief. Again, it's not the happiest 815 is going to be in this episode, but it's pretty damn close. Yeah, 100%. It's just, it's a, it's a big moment of victory and it's a sharp contrast to where we're about to go. Uh, so yeah. let's, let's do it. I, I think we'll, we'll be as dry eyed as humanly possible here. Uh, we're going into the looking glass. Charlie's going to go tap out good vibrations. There's that, uh, that yellow light that's blinking. He hums it out. He gets it on the first go and it's, and it's, it's great. It's a moment of victory. Uh, and there's even a little bit more victory to enjoy before things get very, very, very bad. So much for fate. And then all hell breaks. Uh, and you know what? Okay, so once upon a time, we when we uh, launched this podcast, uh, in the very first episode, when we demonstrated what the sounds would be, we played the entirety of the Charlie death scene, mm-hmm. uh, which is mostly just Chicano score. You hear it. You see it. Um, I don't. We, do we have it handy? Could we play it? I mean, do you want to play the entire the entire scene? Because there's also that little bit of dialogue at the end. Yeah, I kind of do. I mean, I know we've played it before, but how much is there to talk through with what happens? You know, Desmond's going to notice that Mikhail is gone, and Charlie sees Mikhail's outside, well, and it's well, such well, an ominous look. Let's talk about this Penny stuff first, though, because I think the, the Charlie stuff is very emotional, and we should talk about that. But I think we should talk about the trap door drop that is finding out that what we thought, which was that Penny 
you know, was the one behind this whole expedition was not the case. We'd assumed this ever since we linked back the end of season two with Naomi's claims. And it turns out that maybe what Ben is saying is a bit more true than we may have thought initially. Right, right. I mean, it's definitely starting to like clarify, okay, where where might we go in season four with like some new tension, some new yeah. others. As I well. also love that Penny apparently seems like she's coming to you live from like the Chief's hideout and where in the world is Carmen Sandy uh, with like yeah. a non-descript <laughs> bookshelf. I also remember being so angry, Josh, that the door slams as Desmond runs for Penny because I, you know, we hadn't seen the concept and we didn't see the end of season four when they met up. We'd assumed that they were going to be apart forever. So to have yet another opportunity for Desmond to talk to Penny be yanked away from him was just gutting in a very gutting set of scenes. So, I mean, like, it's very mechanical, right? Like, Mikhail blows himself up. It's he's such a he's such a turd that he does it like this. Like, if he made it from being alive with the spear to the to the chest, was there not a better way for him to play this one out? I don't know. I kind of think probably. Yeah, like, I mean, he could have pulled the pin out and then like thrown the grenade and then tried to swim away as fast yeah, as Yeah, anything, buddy. But, you know, Mikhail's an idiot. You know, I think the best read of Mikhail well, I mean, is that he's a loyal idiot. I mean, here's the thing. He said, kill Charlie by all means necessary. So he's like, okay, I did the second part. Now the first part. Yeah, so he goes and he does it. And Charlie, because everything that he has seen, everything that he has experienced... He believes that by sacrificing himself here, he's going to save the people he loves. So he goes through with it. He goes through with it. Yeah. Closes the door. He fills up. You know the rest, but I feel like you got, let's, let's hear it because that's that. If we do have it handy, I think we should just hear it. I think it's just, we can't not, I know we're going long, but like, how do you not hear? We've been long. We're going to be long. Let's continue that length. People grab your tissues. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Friend's name? The rock star who swam down to the station. Charlie, why? Charlie just got us rescued. 
Charlie bloody hell. Oh my God. Well, first off. Okay. Pardon my explicit language. All right. But, uh, but to those people, got children around, this is another one. Like if you're going to go all the way, I mean, what I'm, I'm going to say for those who complain, Oh, why did Charlie shut the door? Why did Charlie let himself drown? He could have saved himself. He could have swam out. Get the fuck off our podcast, please. <laughs> I, I don't go sign that. <laughs> I just, it feels like. I don't go sign that. I think. Just, I, I, it's just such a. This I don't is know. Where you just, use the F bomb. <laughs> it's just such a baseless argument that I know jo- Josh and I both agree with my message here. I, I don't know. I don't know. think I just, the podcast stay. Don't go away. Stay. I think you're wrong. I mean, I think I think they're very wrong because I think it's like playing needless semantics. And I think if Charlie does indeed swim out and survive this, it, in my opinion, completely undoes the events of greatest hits. The fact that we did an entire episode with Charlie coming to terms with the fact that he had to die on her and be like, oh, just kidding. I don't need to die. Bye. It would just be a complete sideswipe needlessly so of course and it's uh he's he's he does the he's a hero charlie pace is a hero what he does here is is intensely heroic everything that he has seen and experienced has led him to believe that this is absolutely the thing to do he's fulfilled he's he he's at peace he uh you know he has a beautiful moment a final moment with a friend if oh, not like a mentor. And I, I love that so much. So first off, I love the fact that this scene is basically the Charlie's death scene is basically wordless. This is probably one of the most beautiful scenes in all of lost, which is saying something and lost is such an incredible job knowing when and when not to use words. Like I love the fact that for example, the last act of Exodus is done entirely without dialogue because what can you say? And I love that that's done similarly here where everything goes in slow motion as the door slams and you don't need to say everything, right? I love the fact that it is wordless. It is soundless representing the water that comes rushing in and it gives more weight to the reactions as well. We have the infamous not Penny's boat and the nod that Charlie gives to Desmond. Like you said, that final moment with a friend works on so many levels where I think on one level, it's it's almost giving instructions to Desmond of like, hey, you pass this on, right? This is the, my final words to you. But it's also Charlie sort of saying like, thank you. Yeah. You know, thank you for, for helping me get to this point. I could have died so many times beforehand, but you prevented that. Now I've helped us save us all. At least I'm thinking so. So thank you, Desmond. I'll see you and in another does, life, by the way. He absolutely does. You know, if he if he hadn't done what he had just done... Um, you know, maybe like, does he need to die in order for all of this to happen? Debate that if you want, that's fine. Um, but him putting that call out doesn't matter that he's not contacting the freighter and it doesn't matter that he's enabling Jack to contact the freighter filled with people who are going to kill a bunch of people. Um, he contacts Penny and because he contacts Penny, I believe this is right. Penny is able to lock on to the island. Yeah. And if not for that, then the Oceanic Six plus Desmond plus Lapidus do not leave. Right, exactly. They, they might not get found. Desmond and Penny do not unite, and Desmond does not get his happily ever after. You know, so he actually did something rather tremendous here. Um, 
So it's great. It's 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 a it's a it's a very important moment for the show. It, it is, uh, you know, someone who once was thought unkillable, even though they almost killed him once mm-hmm. upon a time. Uh, one of the original three main characters of the show uh, dies here at the end of season three after, you know, a season where they really didn't know what to do with him. They come up with this storyline of like, what does it mean um, to, to live on borrowed time? Uh, and they tell it beautifully. And Dominic Monaghan plays his heart out. And last week was really such a great love letter to Charlie that this does feel to a certain extent, everything with Charlie and this just like feels like, you know, cherries on top of the Bonifi pie. Right. You know, like it's just like him. Um, like you said, like he's like kind of flexing, playing with house money. Uh, there's like, he's, he's at peace. He's at ease. He knows he's ready. He just needs to do the thing. He just needs to turn the key. He's Desmond at the bottom of the hatch. He yeah, just needs he, to turn the thing. He's already gotten in the car. Like he knows he's making this drive. He just has to, has to he turn has to the get there. And so Charlie's final thing he does in this mortal life is as he's drifting back, he makes the sign of the cross, which again shows how he's become a man of faith, as you so beautifully put before. But what's so interesting is if you notice, uh, Charlie is crossing himself with his left hand instead of his right but it looks like as if it's backwards, as if it's through a looking glass, mm. if you will. And there's also really something great with the lighting, too, where light's coming through the porthole. And I think maybe this is me projecting, Josh, but I think if you look at it a certain way, you can see a halo around Charlie Pace's head, essentially, you know, canonizing him as a saint of Lost. Um, I love the idea that instead of seeing ghosts, we're seeing saints in the future. So the Charlie we'll see in the season four premiere, St. Charlie. Yeah. The saints come marching in. Yeah, man. I dig it. I like it. And I've, so I have always really like, obviously this is probably one of the most emotional scenes in the entirety of the show. uh, Because we talked about this last week. There's just so much weight to the character of Charlie, especially in the lead up to this. But what always gets me time in and time out is hearing Aaron cry. Yeah. Right. This idea of like this connection that Charlie had with Aaron, where Aaron grabbed his face, where Charlie told him he loved him last week. And that Aaron, like you'd like to imagine, like somehow felt it somehow. Maybe that speaks towards possible powers that Aaron has in the future that he knows something is wrong with Charlie. And that's why he cries out is like so heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, Cause it reminds you the legacy he left on the Island and just like, Oh, there's so much beauty in uh, Charlie just got us rescued that like, yes, he did. But at what cost? You know, he was able to accomplish it. But in exchange, he paid his life for it. Yeah, it's great. It's just excellent. The looking glass cloud is is wonderful. I also caught on this time Desmond and, Char- and Charlie touching hands through with the looking glass. Yeah, like yeah. yeah, Desmond brings up his hand to touch it to Charlie's as if a way to be like, you know, to I'm with it. you. Yeah. And to also, I think, sort of carry Charlie's burden a bit as well, too. You know, well, to sort of like, Desmond is like us in that moment. Right. Because like you can't reach out and hug Charlie. You can't reach out and say goodbye. He's a TV character. And like Desmond can't even do it. Like you can't yeah. touch him. You know, Charlie's alone. Charlie's on his own journey now, like Locke would say. Uh, and, and, but and Charlie's and okay. He's okay. You just have to see the look on his face. He's okay. He's yeah, and, right. and and I love that that also comes with, you know, as the water comes rushing in, you see it play across Dominic Monaghan's face, right? Yeah. He takes a pause to sort of like take stock of everything going around him. And then he jumps into action. Like he says right there and then I can imagine his inner monologue is this is the moment. I thought it was on the boat, but no, no, no. This is what he saw. 
this is what needs to happen. This is it. Yeah. This, this is this is what I was brought here to do, and I'm I'm going to go through with it. I'm at peace. I'm ready to move on. Yeah. And you know, I thought I'd be more emotional talking it through, and I'm actually really at peace with it. Uh, I, I really am too. I think maybe it's because last week we have sort of yeah. like eulogized well, Charlie. The, about the yeah, that's one of the great things about greatest hits is it lets you get a lot of your Charlie feels out. And uh, you know, watching it, I'm always emotional. And and uh, but talking it through this time, like there is more of like a resignation behind it, and more of a like, no, this is like the perfect note for that character. Yeah. He got exactly what he wanted. There's so much satisfaction yeah. in there, which is weird to say out of a character's death, but, be, but because he does it essentially the way that he wants to, right? Like like those naysayers say, he could have very easily slay you know open the door swum out with desmond and that's the end of that but he he makes a decision in that moment of like no i need to go through with this and it is so beautiful yeah um all right let's go back with the crew we gotta we're, we're, we're yeah we got we got one much like again much like exodus it is one uninterrupted act from here on out which i love because you really can't take a break within any of this action going on. a lot goes down all right so they get to the radio tower uh, and a huge, you know, this is a huge day for Danielle Russo, banner day. Uh, this is the message she recorded 16 years ago, three days before Alex was born. She just like hits stop. Guess we don't need that anymore. Easy as that. Uh, it's not, not, not a nothing moment for Danielle Russo. It's sort of a, a very big deal. Um, another very big deal happens here. A lot is about to go down. Yep. We're going to listen to it all. Uh, because it is a, it's a, it's a roller coaster of a scene. It's our, our final scene on the island. Let's listen in. I'm getting something. It's gonna work. It's happening. We're gonna get off of this island. We'll celebrate when we're home. Jack. I know you think you're saving your people, but you need to stop this. It's a mistake. Mistake was listening to you. This will be your last chance, Jack. I'm telling you, making that call was the beginning of the end. I've got it. I've got a signal. Jack, please, you don't know what you're doing. I know exactly what I'm doing. Jack. What did you do? What I had to. Now step back. Stay away from the phone. I don't want to shoot you. Do it, John. Shoot him. Do what you need. Please put the phone down. No. You're done keeping me on this island. I will kill you if I have to. Then do it, John. Jack. (laughs) 
Who's this? Who's this? My name's Jack Shepard. Are you... Are you on the boat, the freighter? How'd you get this channel? Naomi. Naomi told us about your search team. About the boat. Naomi? You found her? Where is she? Who are you? I'm one of the survivors of Oceanic Flight 815. Can you get a fix on our location? Hell yeah, we can. Sit tight. We're right there. Everything's gonna be okay. He did it. The sun is shining. Vans out. Locks a murderer. They did it. They pulled it off, and then they leave, and then uh, lost ends, and it's just a very happy time for everybody exactly. involved. No more bloodshed. Everyone just has, and they all have like little reunions where they're like, "Oh, remember that? Oh, that was a grand old time." No, of course not. We have a lot more to go. We need we need to break down this scene again. Uh, some really great work from Michael Emerson here. The bellowing with which Ben is like desperately yelling at Jack to not make the call is just fantastic because yeah. this is a Ben that we have never seen before. This is a Ben who for the first time we can see his plan has gone awry and to see him, how he acts when essentially he doesn't get his way is just such a great new shade of this character. He's so upset. He, you know, he thought that he was going to talk him out of it. You got that wrong, buddy. And they're coming for you and he knows it. He knows it. He knows that he's the target. He knows what's about to go down. Exactly. He, he, he believes that Jack essentially just like called in the squad to, to execute him yeah. right now. And, and he's just tied up and can't do it. But speaking of fury, there is a great delivery from Matthew Fox. As soon as, you know, Naomi keels over Jack, just yelling, John, just the fury from that line read is so much fun. It's only the second time they've seen each other since the end of season two, basically, you know, they yeah. saw each other when the submarine blew up and now they're seeing each other again. And so like they've been on their own journeys and in one in, and Jack's journey has been to get the hell out of here. And John's has been to dig in. Uh, and so these two journeys are in like very stark opposition to one another. Yeah, so that's going to that, be the primary story next year. Exactly. That's going to be the crux of season four is that these two do not believe in fundamentally different things about what to do next. And it's clear in this line read that Jack has had it. He does not tackle Locke because Locke, you know, has him at gunpoint. But Jack is done at this point with John Locke. But, I mean, Locke has a very interesting role to play in this scene as well, because he does woo Naomi, at least. She is not officially dead yet, but Locke, despite threatening Jack multiple times, is not able to kill him. Is that part of the brig, in your opinion, Josh? Is it that, like, Locke cannot go through with killing someone as important in his life as Jack Shepard? No, I don't think think it's the same thing. Um, I don't think he wants to do it. I don't think that he ever really plans on doing it. I think that he still wants, I think maybe it's like a bit of a moment of weakness, but the real John Locke comes out at the end and uh, he doesn't believe that Jack is supposed to do what he's supposed to do. But I still think that he believes that Jack was brought here for a reason as well. And if this isn't the reason, then that reason is still to come and it hasn't happened yet. Uh, So he has this very important connection to Jack. Uh, He's not ready to go this far. Mm, I, that's an interesting point. I mean, I don't know. I, I could also see that like John Locke 
has a tough time killing those who are important to him, you know, which, which also really starkly contrasts in a very fun way with the man in black who just like offs people with very little, you know, little regard. He'll have someone kill his brother, despite the fact that they grew up together, but there is so much fun interplay here and a great, a lot of great irony, you know, Jack saying you're done keeping me on this Island uh, when really Locke's going to be the reason that Jack gets brought back to the Island Locke telling Jack that you're not supposed to do this when really like, he yeah. sort of is uh, considering the the course of events with everything. And Jack also gives a very fun WTF look response to Locke and be like, what the hell are you talking about? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Here's me. We got our first Minkowski, though. I don't believe it's Fisher, not. It's yeah, not yeah, Fisher, Fisher Stevens does not do the voice here. No, it's not Fisher Stevens. They haven't cast Fisher Stevens yet. They don't know that Minkowski's going to be a bigger character yet, I don't think. Yeah, he's uh, not. So the line doesn't end with like, hey, wait, why is my nose bleeding? And they didn't George Lucas it and put Minkowski's voice in properly. Uh, we just roll McCluskey or whatever. Yeah, it's totally fine. Totally uh, fine. But there's the the Jacino score is so brilliantly soaring as Jack makes the call, right? Because it emotionally brings them with you, like, wow, they actually did it. This is something that again they have been yearning to do since they went for that transponder in the very first episode of Lost. They've been seeking rescue. It's finally happening. Celebrate good times. It's actually happening. 815 is on top. For once, for the first time in three seasons, but it's all going to come crashing down. It is a brief moment of elation and victory before even like later that night, they're going to get very bad news, you know? So it's not, you can't even say this is the best day for 815. It's the best like three hours. It's a moment. (laughs) It's a moment in time, but for a moment, they've got hope. They really, really do. It's like the best moment since the raft launched. And this one feels even more tangible. Um, so they're, they're really excited. It's a huge relief for Jack. Alas, it is a fleeting relief for Jack. Uh, we end the episode, of course, back in the future. Uh, and I know we're going to play this one out, Mike. Where are we going to start? Uh, so we have some shots of Jack, you know, going Atlas crazy with all the maps around his apartment. He finally pulls out his Motorola one more time, makes the call. Got to call up a waterlogged roast beef sandwich he's got by the sink. It looks yeah, like just dripping, drip, drip, uh, but uh, not dirt spigot. But Jack, you know, finally gets the person he wants to on the other end of the line, says, let's, you know, let's be in our usual spot. I've got to talk to you. And we're going to find out who the other person is at the end of the line. And it produces, Josh, one of the greatest twists in television history. Uh, We heard a little bit of it in the very beginning of this podcast, but let's hear all five glorious minutes to end through the looking glass. Oh, I'm so happy. Okay, we just got to listen. Let's go to the runway. You look terrible. 
Thanks. Why did you call me Jack? from LA to Tokyo or Singapore or Sydney <laughs> and then I, I get off and I have a drink and then I fly home why because I want it to crash Kate care about anybody else on board every little bump we hit or turbulence i mean i actually close my eyes and i pray that i can get back this is not gonna change no i'm sick of lying we made a mistake. I have to go. He's going to be wondering where I am. We were not supposed to leave. Yes, we were. Act one. Uh, what, what an act one closer. Um, crazy. You know, just absolutely crazy. It's a total. It's a. It's a to- it, it, It's the Sierra Don Thomas of Lost, Mike. A complete and utter fan favorite game changer. Absolutely. I mean, in so many ways, the I the minute that Kate steps into the light and reveals herself. Your mind does at least three somersaults, you know, a, a few herkies and just does complete gymnastics trying to figure out this does not compute. What the hell is happening? And then you slowly but surely begin to do the math of, oh, my God, that was totally my journey with it. Uh, I was like, wait, 
what is Kate doing there? That like, oh, is this an alternate you? universe thing? Oh, no, give that a couple it's seasons. Like, wait, did Jack and Kate, like, know each other from... That doesn't make any... Oh! You know, it was like that. It was like, oh, shit. Oh, I, God. They get love- out, and it's not good. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing as well, is that, you know, the given circumstances, everything that's between the lines here alludes to the fact that it is not good. We don't know that three years have passed, but we know that, you know, something has happened that has caused these two people who the last time we saw them interact, they were working together. Jack was saying that he loved her to have her to be have Kate just regard him so coldly for him to be so desperate to him. I mean, Matthew Fox, again, I will just say for the umpteen time really fantastic in this scene my favorite moment i think other than just like the bellowing of we have to go back is uh the first time he says it uh and she like looks at him like she just holds his gaze and he kind of like nods at her afterwards as if like she's on board and she's just not and like that's just how far gone he is like we have to go back yeah, like, like oh no like, oh you're with me right like i'm yeah. your leader you know that that yeah. what i say goes i mean him vocalizing to me, that point is even proven when he says outright, you know, I fly in these planes here. I don't care about anybody else on board. Every little bump we hit or turbulence, I actually close my eyes and pray that I can get back. This is a guy who previously had a complex about having to save people, right? To protect the group, to keep as many people alive as he can as the leader. Now this is someone who has contempt for human life to a certain extent of like, yeah, I don't care how many casualties there are in this plane crash. I am so desperate to go back. This shows just how far Jack Shepard has gone from the person we even say goodbye to in that penultimate sound clip. It's it's an incredible, incredible diversity of performances in Matthew Fox. You're the wild the wildness in his eyes with which he, he regards this cockamamie plan of like going back to the island is the only thing I, I think we can do right now to save my life. And then he is just left in the cold. And the final shot, Josh, of this entire season is a plane flying overhead. And it is so incredibly symbolic in so many ways. First, it's a call back, right? Like an obviously talks about the plane crash from season one. That's what Kate makes a reference to. And the fact that Jack is trying to cause these more, but what is one of the final things we see in season six? Yeah. A plane taking off. So it's saying not only is this going to be one of the first images, this is going to be one of the last images we see of the entire show. We know at this point, Lost had officially sort of put an end date into motion. They were gearing up for what the end game was going to be. I don't know if a plane taking off was going to be in there immediately, but it's a fantastic setup of not only where we've been, but where we're going to go. Yeah. Well said, you know, I, I, I got nothing further, your honor. It's just next level. It's next level. It, it, it totally holds up. It exceeds the hype going back and watching this one was such a blast. Yeah. Uh, I'm just it, a very much interesting word choice. Maybe two out of three blasts. You know, it was, it was really intense, frenetic, emotional. It's everything. Um, I mean, we'll get into the official MVPs and LVPs next week because, you know, we just spent three plus hours talking about an, ep- an episode of Lost. So you know, forgive us. Well, you know what? Like, we have like, we can tag on an extra like two minutes because I think we can go through these pretty easily. All right. You don't want to save it for next time. No, because like, I think we can go through, I think we can then go through the, the outright MVPs. MVPs and LVPs next time. I think. Right. I think let's, let's let's tie a bow. So on, let's, let's do on it quick because I, I know that we wanted to uh, we wanted to spread the love. 
this time around. So no one's getting doubled up upon because there's just so many people to give MVPs and LVPs to this week. And in, and, in and, addition and to that, that, we wanted to make sure that both Mike and I had an extra spot for both the MVP and LVP categories. So we each have three MVPs and three LVPs this week. We essentially said, you know what? In honor of season three, we'll get three and three for each one of them. I know there could be an argument of like, oh, it could be, you know, uh, even another set of MVPs and LVPs. Yeah, we, we, we play fast and loose with the rules here, just like lost itself. So we decided to, to, you know, squeeze in a little extra love and a little extra hate for characters in this episode. So there's a there's a few characters that I think are just like gimme MVPs this week. Uh, and, and I think that you, you slotted them all. Uh, Jack, that's a gimme. Right. Yeah. That, that, that mean, not even the fact that he does make the call successfully. He does lay a smack down on Ben that honestly he deserved for so long. But also Matthew Fox puts in, as I said in the very beginning of the podcast, arguably his best work in yeah. this episode. Yeah. Uh, Charlie Pace, an utter gimme. That is the <laughs> like the gimmiest of gimmies in terms of like a, just a, a slam dunk, very easy. MVP and, and spoiler for this, because we said this at the very beginning, Josh, when you started instituting this rule of I'm going to give LVPs to characters when they die. Charlie Pace has avoided Josh Wegler bringing down the guillotine. Well, he's you not know what? LVP point. He's not getting it. Uh, and it's, you know, the good news is like my rule didn't have to be deeply, uh, tested because so many people die in this episode and they're so much worse. So yeah. I don't even have the room to give Charlie an LVP point. So I don't even have to have the debate. Uh, <laughs> but Charlie, I think getting the MVP point here, uh, makes uh, all the sense in the world for all the reasons. Rest in peace. Charlie Pace, rest in pace. Uh, and then I think the other like slam dunk MVP point you're, you're giving out as well is, is Hurley with the van. I saved him, dude. I saved them all. I mean, Hurley is a fantastic sort of like sort of deus ex machina in this. Like you said, his scenes are few and far between, but he does have like arguably his most heroic moment yet in Lost in that being able to save the day and save three people's lives on the beach. So I got to give him major kudos. Uh, all right. So I gave one to Saeed. Because he snaps the neck and it's super, super just, cool. Just, I'm not even mad. I'm just impressed. I'm just impressed. I gave another MVP to Danielle Russo because I think this is her, this is her best day on the island and it's not close. It's a win. It's a win win for her, right? She's able to to get a little bit of a beat down on Benjamin Lyons, the guy who kidnapped her daughter and see her daughter again and finally get rid of that pesky radio signal. And then final MVP goes to Penelope Whitmore uh, for standing by and being ready to receive the call the second that that blinking light jammer stops. Uh, she is she is right there. And if not for the fact that she's right there, the people who do leave would never have been found. Could you imagine if it's instead it goes to a voicemail? <laughs> Like, hi, you've reached Penny. Oh, Penny, thank God. I'm not here right now. So please leave a message. Absolutely infuriating. So I think that all worthy MVPs uh, in the LVP realm, a lot of people died. Uh, too many people died for me to give like full points to. Uh, I'll just do them quickly. I, mm-hmm. I, I gave LVPs to a shit ton of others, Mike. I gave an LVP to racist Ryan getting run over by the van. Uh, I gave an LVP to Tom Friendly shot in the chest. That shouldn't have had to happen to you, it's Mr. Friendly. Blame. You shouldn't have had to die that way. And then I got my final LVP point. I split in half between Bonnie and Greta because they both kind of suck. Yeah, I mean, uh, they were sort of, I don't know, Greta was the biggest nothing burger character I think we've experienced in quite some time, which is weird because Lana Perea is going to become such a big force, almost like the Benjamin Linus in her own regard in Once Upon a Time. But Bonnie was by far the more interesting character. But even then, she was a little aggro. Uh, but they both die. So yeah, sticking to your rules. So I have three. 
One's got to go to Benjamin Linus here because he fell. He Dude, fell hard. Yeah. Uh, and I would say, you know, if we had more room for points, I'd, gi- I'd give him even, I'd pile some moron to him because, like, he really ends up with egg on his face. Yeah, and you said episode. moron. Uh, speaking of morons, one for me, Kyle, for being a big, dumb, one-eyed idiot. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I think it is just so much more satisfying when you view him that way. Yeah, I think, I think I'm, I'm very much around. Look, I am wrong many, many times on this podcast, and I'm so happy to be wrong here to now have a new light for me, Kyle. We'll see if he's still stupid in the sideways universe as well. Uh, now, and listen, I know you disagree, but I know some of the hatchlings agree with me. I'm going to give one to Sarah here. That's totally fine. I, again, I'm not going to fight you super hard. Um, so I think a, a well-rounded MVP LVP category. Um, here's a really crazy thing. You ready? Ready. So through the looking glass, uh, the season three finale of lost. It's a very easy 4.2 for me. Mm-hmm. How about you? I mean, duh, it's a 4.2. Absolutely. Perfect episode of Lost, bar none. Um, it was a 4.2 from every single person, except for one who gave it a four. Okay. Uh, but well, that, you know, everyone's got to have, you know, stick out a little bit from the crowd, but that is unprecedented in Down the Hatch. I will uh, say, even, even some of the greatest episodes, people have not given the full 4.2 to. So it's a it's a four point one nine overall here for through the looking. So listen, we haven't taken a look at the full numbers and slotted everything in, but I think it's extremely safe to say, Josh, through the looking glass is currently our number one episode of Lost overall. It is our number one episode of Lost overall on the down the hatch list. Not even close. We'll talk about everything next week when we do the season three feedback. We'll talk about where because we have a top six of Six episodes from season three all chart in the fours. That's a big deal. Fours. Right. And so how does that get thrown in with, I know there's a lot of episodes from season one that charted in the fours. There are a couple from season two. I feel like, unfortunately, season two is going to start to get weighed down. But also, you know, that we have some some kind of stinkers in season three as well. So I'll be intrigued to see how it all charts out next totally. week. Totally. Yeah, I'm really curious, like, where did season three net out? What, what Was I right that this is sneakily the best season of Lost? Uh, was I wrong? We will talk it through. Uh, only two episodes beneath a three, I will say. That's fairly impressive. Um, all right. So next week, we'll talk all that through on our season three feedback show. We want to get that feedback from all of you down the hatch at post show recaps. And then, and that also means all of your 4.2s as well. I know that there are people uh, in the past couple of weeks who have caught up on all the podcasts. So you do have until next week to send in all your ratings and rankings for season three particular. Then we're going to sort of like soft lock it to do the, the, to run the numbers and everything. But yeah, if you have, if you want us to answer any questions about season three overall, looking ahead to season four, cause you know, in the weeks after that, we're going to be perusing some missing pieces. We're going to be perusing maybe some other miscellaneous losty materials from that torturous nine month period between we have to go back in the beginning of season four. Luckily we don't have to wait that long for down the hatch, but it's a significant period in loss. You know, we just capped off the greatest cliffhanger arguably in the show's history. So we want to take some time to marinate in that and really talk about the state of lost in the moment. So this is what the schedule looks like for the next little while. You ready? This is what's going to happen. So next week, next week, on Down the Hatch, it's the Season 3 Feedback Special dropping January 8th. The week after that, we're going to talk about the missing pieces. The missing pieces were the webisodes that were created in between Seasons 3 and 4 to tide you over. Uh, this is going to be the spot that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about them over the course of two weeks because there were 13 
all told. Mm-hmm. We're going to split them over the course of two podcasts, one that's dropping on January 15th and one that's dropping January 22nd. We'll get into any other miscellaneous lost shenanigans in those podcasts as well. So that being this said, is- if, if you have things that you want us to talk about, specifically from like the 2004 to 2007 era, like for instance, I know that uh, Via Domus, the lost video game, is something that people want us to talk about. We might have a reconvening of the lost book club as well. We're looking for you know, losty stuff between those first three seasons to talk about, to really place us in like, what was the lost environment like during this time? And also just like to talk about some fun little webisode. Con- We're going to get Neil Frogert. It's going to be a good time. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be fun. Uh, then January 29th is when we will launch in to the season four premiere, the beginning of the end. So hang on to your butts. Cause that's, that's coming your way in, in just a couple of weeks. Should be a really fun time on Down the Hatch. In the meantime, we'll see you next week for the Season 3 Feedback Special. And to close us out, why don't we turn it once again to the great Michael Giacchino and his life and death score. Ryan, I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.